Hey, yo, Flip. Yo. I'm going to put you on some fire, man. They got this new bed wash company. They got the lotion and the, the everything. What's their name? They got a recovery room. It's What's out- the name? Maestro's, Maestro's Classic. G-Money's up front. I'll put, put you, you on, put you on man. Man. I'll put you on the you Maestro's, sure? man. You forgot the way I brought you? You forgot where I brought you oh, up there? Oh, man. You forgot? You forgot man. about Ghost? Oh, all right, Who is What's his name? Ghost. You know again? He cool, man. <laughs> Ghost is cool, man. Yo, make sure you get your Maestro's Classic Bed Care products yes. today at Target. CVS mm-hmm. or go on maestrosclassic.com and use the promo code QueensFlip to get 10% off. 10%, that's it? I thought, it was, I thought it was free if you put your... Are you crazy? All right, I got it. Make sure you go there today. Log on, maestroswithas.com. I'm from Queens. G-Money! Yo. What's up, man? What's going on? I'm all right. How you doing? Yeah, we here. Another day. Yeah, you another know what day, another day. Another day of Flip the Script. Yes. Yeah, how you feeling? Good. You know, sponsors is rolling in. No, no sponsors today. I'm playing. <laughs> How's that? How was everything going on? You know what I mean? Um, I know you got a couple of things lined up. What's going on? What do, what do we have to expect from the great one? Uh, oh, me? Me? The great one? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, don't, I really didn't mean No, <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, I, I got a phone call the other day. You know, um, I, I got booked again to DJ out in DR for, for Memorial Day weekend. So I'll be out there um, May 21st to the 26th. Uh, shout to... My man P from What's Poppin' you know what I'm saying? Line me up. Uh, then they got uh, Big Tigger hosting. They got uh, few people on the bill, you know what I'm saying? Nice. So I'll be out there playing more day weekend. Should be kind of dope. Uh, you know. Whatever stuff you want to just keep to yourself until this. I mean, I got, I got some music coming, you know what I'm saying? Producing some more. We're we doing a video shoot on Sunday for a really? record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I got, I got a few things. So you do a, a video things. shoot on Sunday for a record, and you didn't tell your boy. Not saying I know why you, you didn't. You know, I didn't know what's going on. A record that you're on, you're on the record, or it's for somebody else? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm promoting it. You know, I want, yeah, Khaled type shit. You know what I'm saying? I, I produce the record. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna put a record out each month for the, for the whole year. Nice. That's, that's the plan. You know what I'm so saying? You shoot a video. Is the video going on your channel? Yes. Oh. I'm working, man. I'm working. You know, I really don't like that. <laughs> you know, that's a very, very sneaky tactic that, you know, <clears throat> Queens guys do. And that's sneaky. I didn't, I'm not aware of any of this. I mean, I was going to put you on. You know, if, if I invite you, you going to come to the video? No. All right. So I'll let, I'll let you know. What, what <laughs> well, yo, listen. Good to see you. Happy you here. How you doing? How you good? I'm all right. Yeah, that's enough about me. <laughs> um, Shout out to... The people behind the scenes that's how yes, we run. Of course. We have Ebok in the building. Yes. You know, Basco. Shout out to Basco. Facts. Amina. Oh God. <laughs> oh Lord. I want to get rid of her guys. Already? Yeah. Why you like to fight her all the assistants? I don't know. She's just annoying. You know, uh low key behind the scenes just now, we kinda like promoted her to a assistant uh producer. What? She got promoted, sir. Yo, get her out now. She's gonna get fired for real now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And hold on, we can't forget Mighty Two Time. Mighty Two Time. Michelle One Time. Listen, man, we gotta we gotta sit down and talk to her. We back. She back tomorrow. Yeah, she, sure. You know. But everything is good. Everything's good. But I'm excited about our next guest. Yes. You know, usually we do a long intro pause, but we're not doing it. But G Money. Yo. Episode one, four, two. Nigga, we, we made it. it. We got a special guest. Yeah. Oh man. Special, special guest. And for a treat tonight. You know, people, a lot of people requested him. He's harder to reach than Obama. Mm. But he's right <laughs> in the town. People requested this man. And, <laughs> and uh, he has a lot of knowledge. Facts. Um, round of applause one more time for the OG, mm-hmm. Ala B. Welcome. Peace. Thank you for welcoming me. Welcome. And welcome. having me. 
That's my nephew, Dougie. My, uh, Nate's the brother, uh, son. What's up, Dougie? This is my man. I'm glad to be with my next generation of family. Nice. Yeah, nice. It is. Amen. I try to uh, accuse Dougie of uh, eating gum. <laughs> he looked at me like, I'm not chewing gum. Say, you crazy? <laughs> I didn't see no gum go nowhere, so he really wasn't chewing it. My eyes deceived me. I mean, you know, he's, he's a cool guy, man. <laughs> yeah, <that's a> <laughs> Welcome to Flip the Script. Thank you. You know, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the platform, but should be interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So for those who don't know who watch right now, can you tell them who Allah B is? Well, Allah B is a black man that was born and raised in Harlem, New York. Mm. And like most black men in America, I, you know, grew up practically in the streets of the ghetto and went through uh, the educational system without the knowledge of self until I was introduced to the knowledge of myself uh, in 1964 uh, by the one who came with that knowledge to the streets, to the youth in 1964, and that was a lot of father of the Father Sent Nation, the guards and nurse. Mm. And that's, that's my real background. I mean, uh, going through the educational system in United States, for young black men, they didn't teach no knowledge of self. Mm. So I was actually indoctrinated in that system to be uh, a worker, really a slave, you know, for wages that really wasn't conducive towards my intellectual well-being or uh, occurment if I had gotten and received the proper education, namely the knowledge of self and all of the advantages that may have been afforded the young Caucasians in America my age at my grade levels. Mm. Even with that disadvantage, I still managed to excel in school and eventually graduate with, you know, a couple of college degrees. Wow. All right, yeah. Uh, I got a double uh, degree, uh, sociology and psychology from SUNY New Paul's. Mm. However, it was acquired in the School of Hard Knocks. And the School of Hard Knocks, for those that don't know, mm -hmm. was prison. All right? But that's what enabled me to go through that harsh experience and come out sane and civilized in a very negative environment, you know? Still, uh, the hardships that I may have experienced was the learning experience so that I could better educate and inform the youth against the pitfalls that young black men encounter. Today is very different because the pitfalls that they encountered may still be imprisonment but the real imprisonment now is in the psychic in the intellect in their minds by virtue of different things going on like you hear about the feminization of young black men i mean the average person don't know what that means but this is something that's happening across the board to young black men to make them more feminine than masculine. 
a man's mm-hmm. supposed to be, you know, masculine, mu- um, muscle mass, and right. learn to be a provider of his family and things of that nature. But through chemical utilization uh, of different products, namely the foods, you know, where they put estrogen in a lot of the beef products. And, of course, our youth gravitate towards eating the Burger Kings, the Big Macs, and the like. And they consume a lot of that, but a lot of that meat, the cows are injected with the estrogen, estrogen, excuse me, which is a female homo that causes them greater growth. So it's more meat on the cow now, and as a byproduct, it's more beef being served and it's being consumed at a greater rate by young blacks who like fast food. You know, and, and, and it's very appetizing. You know, I'm not even talking about the chicken craze or the chicken sandwich from Popeye and all that. You know, but you can see the type of control that is asserted in the food that they could cause a frenzy with the appetizement of a chicken sandwich that's not as good as your mama chicken. Mm. You know, don't nobody cook I mean, yeah, chicken better than a black woman in America. But That's a fact. But however, they got them going crazy over that. But I don't want to go on about that. But at any rate, uh, it's different now, and we got to contend with that differentness that our young men got to see more role models of black men that's not drug dealers, Mm -hmm. uh, rappers, and the like, or even basketball players. We need them doctors to come back in our community, them lawyers, them scientists, them engineers, and the things of that nature that is nation building right. and is real responsible. But <clears throat> let me let's 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 back up a little yes. bit. Yes. Because you know, I know that you're going to you're a guy with a lot of knowledge. You just, you know, let's back up. Um you will tell us about your parents. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your parents. You were born in Harlem? I was born in Harlem Hospital to be exact. Harlem Hospital giving beds out. <laughs> Go to Lux. <laughs> yes. Tell us about tell us from what you remember your parents. <laughs> Bring us where your parents are from. You know, what do you know about your parents? Okay. Yeah. Well, my father is from Florida. He was born in Ocala, Florida. Mm-hmm. And Ocala, Florida has a history wherein the black people in that town was very resourceful and independent, mm-hmm. that they had everything that a society would have. Mm-hmm. They had two movies, which was black-owned, a pool that was black owned, the parks. My family had farms. They had uh, garages and uh, park. I mean, uh, what's that? Yeah, garage, gas station. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, so they was very, you know, everybody had things of that nature. My mother and my pops went to the 11th grade. He was literate, but he didn't graduate from high school. My mother was a college-educated person from Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a college town. She didn't go to A&T, but she went to uh, Bennett College, which was a teacher's college. So mm-hmm. she became a teacher real early and was a teacher in New York until she started having babies. And she said that she couldn't go and teach somebody else's baby, leave her babies at home teach and go them. teach others. She had to teach her babies. So she stayed home and taught her babies till my brother uh, became a teenager, her last child at 13. Then she went back to work 
but she didn't go back as a teacher. She went back as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And uh, in New York, my pops was very industrious from what he uh, learned and was raised up under in Florida that he owned calves in New York. And he had a gambling den with one of my uncles, Uncle Archie, in Harlem. Uh, the calves was legit. The gambling den was illegit. In fact, he was one of Bumpy Johnson's contemporary, as they call him, a high-profile associate, mm. right? That he was one of the guys in the neighborhood that had money, but it wasn't from uh, numbers, you know? He had money, his was from uh, the gambling den, which was illegal, and he owned two cabs. So I was raised under that environment, educated mother, and a literate father, not illiterate, a literate father, and he was very responsible in that he raised his family, took pride in taking us to school every day. Mm-hmm. My nephew just sent me a picture of uh, me and my uh, three brothers. I have six brothers, but three of them is younger than me, and we was decked out on the Easter with, you know, nice suits. And on that Easter, it was particular because on that Easter we had got two suit outfits so it was real memorable but he mm. found it in my brother's uh archives and mm. brought it up and thought it was real interesting it was i needed that picture but anyway that upbringing was real structured that we had to be in the house at the school uh we could play from at the three to maybe seven mm-hmm. and then we had to be in to have dinner we always sat at the table and had dinner and stuff of that nature, real structured until I was about nine years old. I got kicked out of the school for the first time at nine years old and sent to a 600 school. And that created a lot of turmoil in my household because it wasn't reported by the teacher or the school system that I was... uh, a misbehaving child to the extent that I had to be excluded from the school system. I'm sorry to cut you off. Mm -hmm. What did you do to get kicked out of school? Well, I threatened a teacher, a female teacher. Occasion? Yes. I had difficulty because I was the teacher's pet. And my girlfriend, Sharon Williams, was the female teacher's pet, the girl teacher's pet. And something happened where someone threw a spitball at me and nobody would admit who did it. And I was, you know, kind of rugged youth. So now I'm going to get everybody in the back until somebody tell me who threw the spitball. But at any rate, the way that I got them is that I didn't throw the spitball that you just put in your mouth and then hit somebody with. I went and got a glob of spitball from the uh, toilet paper in the bathroom, brought it back, put it in my desk, and let it dry a little. And then I made spitballs, and I bombed everybody. And when I bombed everybody, the teacher, quite naturally, going to say that I'm the one that initiated the spitball fight. Got it. And I didn't accept that, you know, because I didn't, but I couldn't tell her that somebody hit me with a spitball. So to get even, I seen something on uh, the Little Rascals. I don't know if y'all remember that program, but it was a, our game called The Little Rascals, one of the first child TV programs. And 
uh, Spanky got, no, Alfalfa Spanky, one of them got even with a teacher called Miss Crabtree, and they put a tack in her chair. And I seen that. And that's how they got even with the teacher. And that's how I got even with my teacher. But what had happened, the teacher seen the tack. Oh. So she didn't sit on it like Miss Crabtree sit on it. <laughs> and she figured the only one that would have that type of heart was me. <laughs> so when she accused me of that, I didn't deny it because she was right. I did it. But she had accused me of a whole lot of other things that I hadn't done. So I felt I was getting even. And then when she stopped me from being her monitor, I was used to give out the cookies, sell the cookies and the milk, and, you know, the cash would be in the thing. But she stopped me from doing that. So she was chastising me, punishing me, and I thought unfairly. So I resisted that. And when I resisted that, it escalated to the point that I threatened her that I would get her the last day of school. And I thought I could say that and stay there. Until the last day of school. But no, they changed the teacher. I didn't see her no more. Miss Nathan was her name. And they put a black woman in there. Named, a Negro woman, excuse me, to be correct. Named Miss Law. And she was about the law. But she was a strange-looking, dark-skinned Negro. She had purple hair. And why she come in my classroom with purple hair? And I just went bananas. It was a joke. And I was in the class clown or anything of that nature, but I wasn't afraid to tell the truth. And I couldn't understand this the first person, black person, I ever seen with a purple wig. In fact, it was the first person in my life at eight years old that I ever seen with a purple wig. So I couldn't understand it. And I told her, I mean, how you wearing a purple wig? And she got purple lipstick and oh, she wasn't God. a good looking woman. Wow. And we had that conflict. And I, they let me do the year out in the class, and then the next year, she's my third grade teacher, and from day one, we just had it. And at the end of that school year, they didn't tell me that I couldn't come back. <laughs> they let me go home, do the summer, and when I went back on the first day of fourth grade, nine years old, no, go home, you don't go to this school no more. Wow. And that was devastating. You know, they could have told me, told my parents, you know, to make arrangements to send me wherever they was going to send me, but they didn't. And, and and that was like a real blow, but they got a Negro teacher to come with that. So I seen the difference mm -hmm. in the racist attitude, but Miss Nathan wasn't a racist. I didn't recognize her as a racist right. person. I really didn't know what racism was, although I knew that some racist men had killed 13-year-old uh, Emmett Tilt in Money, Mississippi in 1955 when I was about seven, six years old and shit. And I knew they killed him because he was a black boy from Chicago, black teenager from Chicago, and they claimed that he whistled at a white woman. Mm. But it was later said and determined after they done killed him, threw him into Tallacoochee River and mutilated him, that she said that she was talking to him and she followed him outside of the store. And then whatever she had intent, her husband appeared. So she acted like he did something and she chased him out. But that wasn't the real deal. She chased him out because she wanted some of that black young Peter. But she couldn't say that.
in that racist town, you know. But I knew that racism, you know, and, and we was on it, like, at that time. Because in 55, you had major things happening with Rosa Parks in, uh, in Alabama and King coming to the set from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And in 54, going into 55, you had uh, the... Kansas, uh, board of, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, board of education case. Mm. So it was a lot of stuff hitting us, and we was called Negroes at that time. It wasn't no African-American. If you call somebody black, uh, you had a fight. We called somebody black in 54, 55. It was like calling them a nigger. Mm. Yeah. We didn't really get to the black thing until Malcolm started kicking it from 57 to... Uh, 63, and then James Brown came with I'm black and I'm, I'm proud, proud. Yeah. and said loud, and we got all of that. And the natural didn't hit the scene until, what's my sister name? A.B. Lincoln. She was an actress married to a jazz musician named Max Roach, and she had one of the big Angela Davis uh, afros, natural. So we started getting images of black people, of ourselves, but it took that graduation of struggle, mm -hmm. you know, through education, through the racist murder of young Emmett Till. You know, that was serious because this is a young teenager, right? you know, from Chicago, a major city, and he go down south and they treat him like a dog. And the worst thing is that his grand uncle let them take the young mm -hmm. kid out the house without a fight. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and my pops, they, they used to fight with guns in the South. And they had that type of respect that you wasn't doing. Like uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, 1921, uh, when they burned uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they dropped bombs on blacks for the first time in America. Only place that is noted other than Philadelphia of them dropping bombs on uh, people in America was Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was because uh, a white woman accused a young brother who was an elevator operator of trying to rape her. Mm. And they put the young brother in jail, and the dudes wrote in the papers that they going to the jail and going to string this young nigga up. And the brothers and uh, sisters ain't having that. They went to the jail with their guns to protect this young brother from coming, I mean, from getting hung by these racist people that said, and they publicized that they was going to kill him. And, a, and a, a white cracker tried to snatch a gun from one of the brothers, mm -hmm. and he shot him dead. And next thing you know, the, the mess was on. It's called the uh, Tulsa Race Riot. Uh, that's what they call it. It was a massacre. Because mm -hmm. they, they, they just discovered through uh, new electronic stuff mm -hmm. a grave of uh, 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 300 people. Possibly. They haven't even dug it up today. Three, it's possibly 300 people in Tuscaloosa, Oklahoma, maybe buried in a mass grave from that, uh, as you say, race ride. Yeah, today. You can go online and, 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 and pick it up and everything. That is a possibility that 300 people in a mass grave today. So things like those atrocities, you know, was serious. And those were the images that we was getting nationally. And 
it had that, you know, effect of terror instilling in us. And we had that reaction that we ain't letting nothing happen to us. Mm -hmm. That's why when it came to the 60s, and we was dancing in the street. Martha and the Vandellas was singing, dancing in the street. Mm-hmm. Dancing in the street for us, young blacks, was riding in the street. Really? And I was I, I was in the 64 ride of 1964 in Harlem. They killed a young brother named... Hold on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, go don't get me started. Go on, go on. Yeah. He ready. Let, let's go yeah. back a little bit. I know. Pardon me, pardon me. Let's keep yeah. that in mind, the Harlem okay. ride. Yeah. Let's get back to... You said that when they kicked you out of school, yes. You said that it was a it caused an issue at the home. Explain that what you meant by that. That's good. I appreciate that. Uh, my mother called me an angel that I, I I couldn't do no wrong, and it used to disturb me that when they did accuse me in school of doing things, some of the things I did, and my mother would be starts vehemently denying that no, my baby ain't did nothing. Y'all must have did something to him. He's an angel. And to her, I was in my household. I didn't do no wrong. And Pops knew his son. And he always said that if they mess with him, he going to get him hell. So Mom saying I'm an angel. Pops saying I'm going to get him hell. And they had the conflict that she telling him, well, you believe them over your son. And he telling her, no, it's not that I believe him, I mean, b- believe them over him. It's that you got to understand that if they mess with him, he going to do something to them, mm-hmm. you know? And she couldn't grasp that idea. Mm. So they had their little dispute in, in that regard that when it was time for me to go to the new school, Pops took me to the new school, but when we got to the subway, he wasn't driving down there, number one. But when we got to the subway and he seen the crowds, uh, what's that, rush hour, pushing to get on, the D train, and he backed up and said, no, nah, we ain't going. I ain't getting on that motherfucking train. That's how he said. Took me back home and told Moms, you got to take him. You want him to go to school? You got to take him. Mm-hmm. And Moms had to take me to school. Now, in between that time, I didn't know it, but Pops came home one day with a suitcase, two suitcases, full of money. One, he didn't open it, but he said it was cash, and he taken it. The other one was full of change, and he gave it to my mom's, counted out, put on the dresser, and I was in the room, and it was $600 in change. And I didn't know what was going on. I was about nine years old. That was the same year, 57. And I didn't find out what was going on until 1965. I was about seven years later that Pops outran the statute of limitation because he actually was selling drugs. And it was unbeknown to me, I guess my mother, and anybody that we knew. He had another apartment up the block. He had another crew and everything. I only knew him as a businessman. I knew he had a gambling den. I knew he had two cabs. So I knew he had a source of income that was legitimate and illegitimate, but I didn't know about the drugs until I was 16, and he told me that himself, right? And he told me about, he had got a tip, because they was paying the police, and he got a tip that they was coming to bust his crib. 260 
216, 146th Street. And that he went and got the money. And he was coming out the building, but he was going through the backyards. They had backyards. And his partner was coming in the building, K.O. Smitty. And he told him, come on, man, I got the money. And K.O. no, I can go upstairs. I got enough time to get this shit. And Pops went out the back way, and Smitty went upstairs, and the police bust him, and he got 35 to 45 years. He had to go through courts to get out later. But Pops went to Florida, and in that next couple of months, he sent for me and his Pops. And we went to Florida. We were supposed to be like, I guess, the advanced part of the family to go see if we wanted to live in Florida. Pops had it. He had a bar and a construction company. When we got there, he had a bar and a construction company, a riverfront home with a patio, front porch, two cars. He had shit set up, you know? But uh, me and my brother got there, and after eight months, we went to school, but after eight months, we missed the city. When the summer came, we went in January. By August, we was back in New York because we missed the city. And when we came back, and he wanted us to come back. We didn't go back. He'd been to Florida with his pops, you know, as a visit, on visiting tip. I've been back only on visit, but not to go back to live. But uh, pops gave me the real deal about, you know, that situation when he left New York. But the conflict in regards to the school thing, the school issue, I guess it was believing that your son in the household, moms, I was an angel. I ain't did no wrong in the house. Pops ran it, and he ran it with an armed fist. But he knew that he ain't take no shit, and I'm his seed, and I wasn't taking no shit. You know, so that was a, you know, it wasn't no major, major, serious, crazy mm -hmm. domestic violence conflict. Okay. But they had the uh, different views a one child. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, uh, you said that the, the other school was a 600 school. Yeah. What's that mean? 600 school was what they call like a disciplinary school. It was a, a disciplinary, I believe, parochial school. Mm. And they emphasized more on the use of your hand. It was more vocational as opposed to academic. Gotcha. I went to PS90, a public school, and it was a boy and girl. And it was, you know, they dealt with academics. We didn't even have no, only thing we had was art outside of the class and recreation. Right. Right? But at the 600 school, the classes was called opportunity classes, really for occupational classes. Right. They call it op class. And it uh, had four different shops, a metal shop, a wood shop, a ceramics uh, shop, and a carpentry shop. I said a wood shop. And another one, oh, I can't think of it. I mm -hmm. just can't think of it. But it had all emphasis, four classes a week. Right. We went to a different shop, all working with our hands. And just one class, we was really concentrating on books. So it was more, uh, you're going to work like a tool. Mm. You know, you ain't even got to use your head now because we're giving you everything to occupy yourself with tools and simple recreation as opposed to the academics. Right. And that, that's what that was. And when you came to class, I mean, when you came to school, 
they search you. You know, and everybody carried a knife. <laughs> so you see a bunch of guys outside the building hiding their knives, go inside, get searched, and then sneak out and get their knife and come back yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. So and you stayed there for how long? From the from the fourth grade, nine years old, to the ninth grade, 14 years old. Mm. Uh, the first year, I could have went back, but I got caught up in the vocation of working with my hands. I liked it, the wood shop. I liked it, the metal shop. I liked the ceramics. And it was another one that I liked it. I liked. Right. Because now I'm creating things, and I'm seeing it just as I created it. You know, mentally, intellectually, I was creating a lot of things, uh, problem solving, critical thinking, and all that, but I wasn't seeing it. I didn't really recognize it. I didn't know what it really meant, mm. you know, but the, the, the mechanicals, I was seeing it. I was making wood stuff. I was making metal stuff. I was doing ceramics, and I was bringing it home. Look, I did this. I did that, you know, but the critical thinking and right. all that other stuff was what I was supposed to be getting. So it started out being a, a negative thing, and it turned out to more so positive. positive. Than, it did. You know what I'm it saying? Do you feel like that helped you in the future as you got older, like going to that school? And yes, only to the extent that I was getting instant rewards mm -hmm. of seeing the end results of what I was doing in school. But the academics, like when I was in public school, I was in line to get skipped from the fifth grade to the seventh grade because wow. of my academics, right? And after I got kicked out of the school in the fourth grade, all that was like run the center. I'm, I'm looking to graduate from high school at 16 or either 17 at, at best, you know? So I'm, I'm looking to be on that track to really work my academic thing, you know? But that was sidetracked unknowingly when I really gravitated towards the occupational thing. Right, right. So <clears throat> you're in school, um, then you find out at 60, you get older. Yeah. You know, so Pops is in Florida. Yeah. You guys are, how many of you were with mom in Harlem? It was five, uh, at the time it was four boys and two girls. Because it's six of you in Harlem. It was six. So now Pops is in Florida. Um, how often do you see him? Okay, we didn't see him other than the first trip to uh, Hollandale, 17 miles from Miami. Mm -hmm. We seen him that one time. But he sent money every Christmas, every Easter, and every school uh, semester. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he was definitely in our life in terms of Providing, okay, but the 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 modeling of the provider wasn't there, mm. and we wasn't really interested in going back to Florida. I, I really loved New York. I started going to school and riding the train, and when I was riding the train, I started learning how to pickpocket. Mm. Yeah, mm. and that was real exciting because I learned how to get my own money. And the thing about it, I was so small at nine years old, ten years old, people couldn't didn't believe that this kid was going in their pocket. You know, and then when we got a little wiser, we was going to Macy's and Gimbals 
and Woodworth on 34th Street and hitting the cash register tilt. And they couldn't believe, because at that time, uh, it was unheard of, people going into cash registers. Mm. Okay, so they didn't have no locks on it. Like, they got locks on them now, uh, different codes. They didn't, at that time, in 58, no, 57, 58, they didn't have no locks on the cash register. And we used to hit no cell and hold it so the bell wouldn't ring. And it'd come out, and we'd take the money. And in Macy's and Gimbal's, what they used to do is that the cashier used to run, ring up the cells, and when the cash register got filled, they would leave the cash register and go tell the supervisor that that cash register is full, and they're going somewhere else. Yeah, and we would watch them, and when they go somewhere else, we'd go to that cash register, get that money, and we would short. So we behind the counter squatting and you can't even see no kids we kids nine and ten years old behind them counters and we dipping taking that money and going down the escalator and coming back uptown and what we used to do we couldn't even buy no reefer we used to buy we used to have a brother named Poolum who had asthma and they used to have asthma cigarettes that was actually uh marijuana i don't know if the uh get high content was taken out but we used to take his cigarettes and dip them in, uh, what was that, North America four-star white port. That was before the popular wines, Thunderbirds and all that. We was drinking white port, and we let it dry and smoke that like we were smoking marijuana and drank the wine like we were drinking wine. And we had little girls, nickels and dimes and kisses and all that. And that's how we were spending the money. We couldn't even buy clothes and take them to the house. Because your parents ain't allow you to steal. You know, you couldn't do no wrong. So we had to, you know, jerk the money. Go to the movies or whatever the case may be. But we couldn't even take clothes in the house. You know, so we was that young. But we was doing those things and getting banked. And Pops is in, in Florida. Pops in Florida. And and yeah. I, I would say, looking back in high sign, I got loose. I was wayward. Moms had six children. And it was it might have been reflective that she might have been like uh, the old lady in the shoe had so many children she didn't know what to do, you know. But she maintained, she held things down, and she made sure that her kids kids didn't get killed in the street. Although we did have on occasion uh, run-ins with the law, you know. But overall, moms did the best that she could. And Harlem at that time was predominantly black. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, uh, only white officers you'll see. We only seen two that I can remember distinctively, and that was Nick. He was an Italian dude who later became uh, the model after Mario Puzo's book, uh, uh, The Cop, that killed the dude on the stairway. Have you seen uh, the Godfather movie? Yes. Yeah, well, the actual cop in which they took that, uh, model other cop in casting was Nick and he was a road cop that he didn't bust nobody and he was straight up hustler and I seen Nick at the 1965 World's Fair with uh, Gangster Mall she had on a mink stove he cleaned with a moe suit and he was sure enough gangster and treated me real good but anyway 
Nick was one police that we really respected and another one that really loved the kids named Charlie. And the reason why the police didn't come in our block is because the first person that I ever heard got killed was the police. I was four years old, and they say they threw a, a refrigerator, an icebox, off the roof wow. on his head and right in front of my building. And I didn't see the body. I didn't see the blood or nothing. But they put a memorial right in front of the building, uh, 146th Street. It ain't there no more. It was the only block in Harlem that had a metal casing on the sidewalk. You know, as a memorial to the cop that got killed. And the police wouldn't come in the block except for the King Cole Trail and the Four Horsemen. And when they came, they really came terrorizing the block, and everybody would get off the block. Right? But it wasn't no patrolmen walking through like they could walk through, like that one they got killed. Mm -hmm. They stopped that. When they came through, they came through with force. So, <clears throat> when, okay, so. At this time, did you know anything about Bumpy Johnson? I knew I heard about Bumpy Johnson at that time. And inadvertently, I had worked for Bumpy Johnson at four years old. And the way this came about hmm. is that Tommy Hartfield, who used to live across the street from me, mm -hmm. was one of the high-profile uh, number runners for Bumpy Johnson. Him and his cousin Richie, uh, Richard, little Richard from 148th Street. And it was a guy named Speedy Mouse who was one of their best number runners. And they called him Speedy Mouse because he used to outrun the police with number slips or either money anytime the police would get on this trail mm -hmm. about the illegal activity. But they knew Speedy Mouse, and he, I guess he began to have a lot of trouble. So Tommy Hoffield, and I learned this later, approached my pops. And my pops was already in the game, but he was in the game as a gambling den owner. And I guess he hustled whatever it was, the hustle he was rustling, the other stuff that I didn't know nothing about. But he, uh, Tommy Hoffield had approached my pops and asked him, could he use me to follow Speedy Mouse carrying the number slips and the money from 146th Street to 148th Street? And he said, yeah, because numbers was a harmless, illegal activity. And plus, Pops was in the life. And I got the job following Speedy Mile. Uh, the first day, I went across the street. Tommy Hoffield lived right across the street from me. I lived in 250. He lived in 271. He had a daughter named Laverne. I used to treat as my little sister. But anyway, he put the number slips in my waistband and I had on short pants. That's how young I was. And I followed Speedy Mouse from 146th Street and 8th Avenue to 148th Street to Lil' Richard Building. Lil' Richard Building was about two or three stories from 8th Avenue. And when I went in the building, Lil' Richard took the uh, slips of either money out of my waistband and told me to follow Speedy Mouse. And I followed Speedy Mouse to a shoe shine stand on 8th Avenue between 148th and 147th Street. And they, I was so little, I couldn't even get on the shoe shine stand. It was a heightened shoe shine stand. And they put me on the shoe shine stand until 3 o'clock. I used to take the numbers at 2. 
but they kept me in there till three. And then at three o'clock, they would give me a quarter and let me go back home. I'd follow Speedy Mouth back to 46th Street. And I went off for, I guess, the summer and the fall when I was four years old before I went to school. And I didn't know anything about Bumpy Johnson at four years old, but I knew that uh, Tommy Hartfield was a number banker, and I knew Lil' Richard was a number banker, and I knew Speedy Mouse was a number runner. And me following Speedy Mouse, carrying the envelopes and the money on occasion, I was a number runner. And I learned later that they had did all that for Bumpy Johnson. Bumpy Johnson had a court headquarters. One of his first headquarters was 148th Street and 7th Avenue, right down the block from where Lil' Richard was the major uh, number banker. Because everybody used to report, report from 146th, 47th, 48th, 49th, I guess 50th and 140. Fifth Street to Lil' Richard's spot. And Lil' Richard was on the same block as Bumpy Johnson. You know, so I learned about Bumpy Johnson later, handling all that. And then when I first saw him to recognize him, I was about 12 years old. And my brother took me to a Democratic club. And I was the only youth there. And they told him, to bring me there. I don't know who, what, where, and how, but they told him to bring me there. And they didn't let me in. I stayed at the door, and my brother was right there, but it was crowded. And then a man came through. He had on, I think, a silk mohair, nice shoes. I don't know if he was gray or black, and I think he had a gray hat, diamond pin, cleaning the motherfucker. And he came through, and I acknowledged him. I noticed him that, damn, this dude is clean, and he was important. And my brother told me, that's Bumpy Johnson. Now, mind you, he walked all the way to the front, and they was waiting for him. And he didn't say nothing. He said something to one of the leaders. I think it was the Beryl president of Manhattan. His name was Julian Jack. And I think he said something to him. And you and Jack say, okay, the meeting is over. And I was one of the first out because I was at the door. And me and my brother left. And he told me, you see that? I said, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I know what he was talking about. Did I see that? That they waited for this man. And I don't know what they waited for him for, but he ain't say nothing but except to you and Jack. If that was you and Jack, the president of uh, Manhattan at that time, he was the first black president of Manhattan. You know? But he had power. And that's the first time I seen him. Now, when I got to know him was when I was working for How You Act. I worked for How You Act as a youth director ever since I was about 13, 14, 15, up to maybe 17. Mm -hmm. And his wife, her name was Miss Johnson, I think, Miss Mamie Johnson or Mame Johnson. And she used to be a director, a dancer, for the girls at How You Act. And we used to be in the gym, in the men's Y, but we used to hang out in the women's Y in the basement because 
uh, Emir Baraka, his name was Leroy Jones at the time, mm -hmm. and he was a playwright. He had a, a play on Broadway called The Dutchman, but he didn't care nothing about all of that publicity and fame and fortune from his play. He wanted us to know about the black theater. So he came up to Harlem and taught in the Harlem Y on the girl's side. So he was teaching us poetry and how to write and act and all that. But the girls was there and they was dancing. And Miss Mamie Johnson used to be showing them the ropes, I guess. And Bumpy, he used to come and get his wife. And we used to see him coming there. And everybody know him now that that's Bumpy Johnson, bam, 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 and he was kicking that. And then I used to see him on Lennox Avenue. He was the first black man that I knew that had a, a check cashing spot. Yeah, between 134th and 133rd. The check cashing spot's still there. But I don't I don't know if it's his, still his or not. But the check cashing spot, but when he was there, it was his. And I used to see him in front of there. And he lived straight across the street in the Lennox Terrace. And I used to work on 135th. And his wife, he used to come and get his wife. So I used to see him, you know, and I guess I seen him at uh, Wells because I used to freaking Wells when I got a little older, you know, got a little money, and we was hanging out in there and shit like that. But I didn't know him personally, personally. But I knew of him. I seen him. And unbeknown to me, I worked for him at four years old. Drew Speedy Mouse, Tommy Hartfield, Lil Richard. And people name him the Godfather of Harlem. Like, do, do you think that, that title fits him? Like, do, do you agree with that when they say that? Yes, I do, because when I was coming up, when nobody else's name was ringing like his. Mm. And uh, the real thing that really made him the Godfather of Harlem is that the legend was that he not only fought Dutch Schultz and the Jewish mob from the Bronx that tried to take over Harlem, but he also saved Lucky Luciano's life in prison in uh, Sing Singer Clinton. That was out there. That he was also involved with the escape from Alcatraz. That he is the only one that financed the escape from Alcatraz. And all of that was like known, ringing, and Bumpy received the utmost respect from the so-called gangsters in that time, from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. So when nobody else getting it like that, I didn't know nothing about him selling no drugs. I, I didn't hear nothing about that until this new program, The Godfather of Harlem. Mm -hmm. And it might have been like, he was like my pops, that his his time, that they were so cool and finesse that they wasn't broadcasting that they were selling drugs. You know? Because my pops didn't broadcast it. I didn't know it. I lived in his house, and I didn't know he sold none of that shit. So he told you? Until he told me. And I was 16. And what were they selling? Heron. Heron. He had a connection with the Cubans from Florida. 
and he told me how he used to transport it, that they would hire a limousine and get light-skinned Cubans to ride like they was white people, and they would have the car loaded up, you know, drugs in the suitcase or either money in the suitcase, and he would show for them, mm. you know, from Florida to New York. And the police would never mess with the chauffeur of these white people. And they they was Cubans, but they looked European, so and that's how he used to transport it. So now you familiar with the streets. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with the streets. Pops told you at sixteen you back, you pickpocketing, you caught gimbals, you caught Macy's. When do things turn up for you? How you mean? As far as like, when do things either you start, either you start making more money or you start getting into more trouble? Like, when do things make a, you know, it it, it, it kicked in for me when I was about twelve or thirteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucky, my man Lucky, he was mm-hmm. a brother of a guy named Pop. Me and Pop used to hang out together. Mm-hmm. And we used to do what we did. And Lucky used to be a basketball player. He played basketball with a brother named Ron Jackson, who later played for the Harlem Gold Trotters. Mm-hmm. And he played with Bird, that was serious shooter. And they used to play for the original Rucker, Hong Kong Rucker. All right? And they used to be in the papers and everything. They had a bad team. They didn't lose none. They were provincial winners in basketball. But Lucky used to buy the herb for us through his brother Pop. His brother Pop knew that his brother knew where to get the good herb, and bam, he would go to his brother Pop, and Pop would get the herb from Lucky, and Lucky recognized, he used to go with my cousin Helen, and Lucky recognized, I guess, me for whatever reason. I was a clean young brother. I was considered the leader of the crew. I was the one that knew how to get the money. I was the one that traveling downtown, going to school downtown. I met a lot of people in the 600 school, and it was various different gangs in the 600 school, but everybody was hustling and stuff of that nature. So I was kind of popular. And Lucky must have liked it that. Plus, he was going with my cousin. So he hooked me up and told me that, yo, you could make some money with your money, right? And I brought a $5 bag. He rolled it for me. I couldn't even roll. And I took it downtown and started selling the herb downtown from Harlem. I got Harlem herb, and I'm selling it for 50 cents a joint. <laughs> Everybody else selling it for a dollar. I'm selling it for 50 cents a joint. So I'm getting popular now in school for selling the joint. And we playing basketball, 600 league. And one of the guys that I grew up with through playing basketball from Harlem, all of us gravitated towards each other. Anybody from Harlem in the 600 school league mm. is down together. And it was uh, New York Fred, Skinny Fred at the time. Me and him hooked up. He was about 13, I was about 12. And we started playing ball together. But now after the games, uh, I'm showing him the pickpocket game. Mm. <laughs> you know, let's get this money. Facts. Yeah, and we got tight. He lived on 115, I lived on 146. So we started hanging out in each other's block. And then we started hanging out in each other's block. 
we got a little older. I was still going to 600 school. I was in the fourth, I mean ninth grade at 14. He was he went to use at 15, mm. and it was a jewelry store. He introduced us to the jewelry store, the, the smash and grab. It was a jewelry store on 17th Street and 8th Avenue, one block from Charles Avenue's High School, and it was a subway station right there. So we broke the window and snatched the jewelry. Omega, it was Omega shop. And at that time, Omega's was the number one watches, aside from Patty Philippe and uh, Rolex wasn't even known to us. We didn't know nothing about Rolex at that time. Mm-hmm. But Patty Felix, LaCouches, Long Jeans, and Omega's was the joints. Mm-hmm. And we hit an Omega shop. And we got right. And when we got right, Fred knew from 116th Street where to sell the jewelry. And he sold the jewelry. He took us to Fat Jack on 116th. Fat Jack was big people. And Pee Wee Curtin was hooked up with Fat Jack. And he knew Skinny Fred from 116. Fred lived on 115. Pee Wee lived on 117. And he was already a basketball star from Charles Evan Hughes. But now he was hooked up with Fat Jack. And Fat Jack was making money. And he was one of the first to put the teenagers down in the dope game. And we were selling him our jewelry. And it came to a point that we were selling so much jewelry that he stopped giving us cash and stopped giving us product. And he was giving us more product for the cash value of the jewelry that we were selling him. Mm. And that introduced us to the drug game. How big were you in the drug game? I wasn't huge, but at that time, Pee Wee... And Fred had downtown, and they wanted me to do shit uptown. Yeah, but I wasn't with it because I didn't like the drugs. I got high with some of my crew, and I was always throwing up. I didn't like it. I hated it. And I seen them become dope fiends, one of the baddest ball players. In Harlem at that time was a guy named Ernie Nelson. He was 13 years old, 6'5". And Joe Hammond, one of the baddest street players that ever walked the earth, he'll tell you about Ernie Nelson. But Ernie Nelson at 13 was a full-fledged dauphine. And he was a friend of mine. And I, you know, was really protrude about him being messed up. So I couldn't go no farther in that game mm. with them. But I did introduce him to a guy named Light Skin Rocky out the Bronx. And I helped him expand Uptown and the Bronx. And you left it you left it alone. Yeah, I started selling Coke and I still was selling my herb. <laughs> yeah. So when so when now at this time I was sixteen. Okay. When I left it alone. You were 16 when you left it alone. Yeah. When you left the drugs and everything alone. The heroin. So, you, and then you went to Coke. I was selling Coke and herb. Okay. Now, you were getting high off? I was getting high off of herb and Coke. But with the crew, three different occasions, I was getting high off of heroin, too. Mm. But I was throwing up. So it didn't sit well with me. 
We was on the 137. It was a guy named Lime. He was serious. Lime went to use too. And he was one of the leaders of our gang, too. He was a track star. I mean, he was, at, at 15 years old, he was invited to run at uh, Madison Square Garden, the in national imitation, the AAU national imitation track meet at 15. He was serious. But anyway, he loved that heroin. And I used to go with his sister. Me and we still tight. She liked my wife. And he got caught up on it. But we used to go on 137th Street after we did whatever we did, jewelry store, stores, whatever money we taking, they buy dope, and I got the dope. And I'm selling it to them. And I'm sniffing with them just because, you know, we hanging out. And they would go out. And I would go out too. But I would always wake up throwing up. And when I woke up throwing up, I go back in the room or wherever, the, and they still out, and I'm sitting around, eyes wide open, and this ain't, you know, for me. And we left all the girls downstairs. I watched my mouth I go downstairs, and I'm with all the girls, my friends and they friends, whatever, but I got all the girls. I can't handle all of them, but I got them all because all them is upstairs sleeping, drugged up and shit, and that, that really hit me, you know, that, Damn, but that wasn't what really stopped me from selling drugs is that the change I used to get, I used to get a lot of money, bills, but it'd be a lot of change too when they come with their shorts and shit. And I used to have a practice like the old dudes that used to do the numbers. They used to throw their change up and we scrambled for the change as kids. Well, I maintained that practice around the schools and threw my change up and let the kids scramble and it hit me that these was going to be my potential customers. Would I sell to them? And I told myself no, because a brother named Igard wanted a Harlem Six. Uh, I was going to fight him one time at 14 or 13 because he wouldn't sell me no herb. And he told me he wouldn't sell no herb to me because he didn't sell no herb to no pregnant women and nobody younger than him. And I couldn't understand that. I wanted to fight him because he refused to take my money for the herb. But it made me think that this guy has some sense of morals, mm -hmm. and that gave me some sense of morals. So it made me think about the younger people than me, and not only younger people, but the pregnant women who had younger babies in their wounds than me. So I developed a moral that I didn't really know that I had, but I grew and it let me know that I had a moral. And I told myself, I'm not selling no drugs to no babies, young people younger than me, really. And that helped me when I made the decision that I wasn't rocking this thing no more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that made it easier that my friends done got drugged out. It wasn't suited for me. I couldn't hold it in and then the morals. So them three things really made me make a decision that I stuck with, you know? Now, at what point did you um, learn knowledge of self? I know you said earlier. It was about, about that same about that time. time. I was about 16 when I made that decision mm -hmm. about not selling no drugs. I still had money. I still had clothes. I was renting a little car. I was paying $75 a weekend 
at 16, 14, 15, 16, and they was beating me. They was only renting cars for a weekend for $27. <laughs> but the dude was giving it to me up here at a Hearst joint mm -hmm. on uh, 149th Street in Grand Concourse mm -hmm. for $75 for with, with no license. No so he was coming <laughs> off. But anyway, when I cut that loose, and now I got a conscious, I already heard Malcolm, I already been to the uh, temple to see Malcolm since I was about 12. Mm -hmm. And it really is resonating with me that I gotta be responsible. You know, and, and I like this knowledge that he's kicking. Right. Wasn't no question about that. But I wasn't gonna put on the bow tie. I wasn't gonna wear no suit. I wasn't gonna wear, uh, sell no papers. I'm young, I'm fly, I got money, I got clothes. I got, you know, access to nice pretty women and I'm riding a little car and all that. Right. And I got a little name, a little rep and all that type of shit. So I'm not giving all that up, but I want this knowledge. And then the father made it easy for me because he came out to Mars with that knowledge and he gave it to us in the street, mm. you know, and that was my suit of clothes that I could still be me and get this knowledge without having to register to get an X. Mm. So about 16, 64, September 64. That was about two months after that 64 riot, you know? You said you was a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, we always a part of it. I mean, they they killed a brother named James Power, and we was all working for How You Act. And we used to canvas the neighborhood. We used to canvas really Harlem, but we began to stretch out, and he canvassed a little beyond Harlem. At that time, Harlem ended at 110th Street, but they went to 103rd Street and Central Park West and was canvassing. And they say he went in a building and the police came and shot him. But that's not so. It was a police water in the street and he shot water on him like he wasn't nothing. And the young brother was rambushes and he challenged this dude for shooting the water on him. And it just so happened to be a police named Gallagher, I believe. And he shot the young yeah, brother. Gilligan. Gilligan, a G, and he shot him. And what happened, it was a crew of brothers with him that was just like me, out of work, out of working how you act, and we was like, you know, we ain't take no shit. And they, like, got busy. Whatever, breaking windows, trying to get the police, even though he got a gun and all that. And Doug Jones, he was a fighter. He had a brother, and he was out my block. He had a brother named Patchy. And Patchy worked for Harlem Hospital, Marguerite. And he went to pick up the body. And Patchy was like an Indian. Mm. What I mean by Indian, he'd drink that fire water and F something up. Mm. You hear me? So I don't know if he was drinking, but when he went to pick up the body for Harlem Hospital, Marguerite, he took up the body, and he didn't take it straight to the Marguerite. He came to the neighborhood. And just like Emmett Tilt mother left his uh, coffin open in Chicago and they put paper, paper pictures so everybody could see what them crackers did to Emmett Tilt. Well, Apache showed the body of what this police just did to this young 16-year-old brother. Mm. And that incited us all. Because the brothers already started downtown on 109th Street. 
and Patrick brought the body uptown in the blocks before he took it to the hospital and showed us. And then we say, we're going down town. We, we didn't start off town. We started on 125th Street. That's where all the stores was. And we started tearing shit up for the next six days. It's six days it started. It lasts for, right? Yeah. So that happens. But during that time, um, you also becoming, you know, we have knowledge of self. Mm-hmm. And you was you said uh, you remember going to watch Malcolm X. You, yeah. you met Malcolm X before? Yeah, I shook his hand. I used to shake his. I used to see him, but on Sundays at two o'clock, I used to go to the Mars. Mm-hmm. Ever since about nineteen sixty one, and they had a practice that you can come after getting searched and have a seat and listen to the minister. And after he concluded his sermon from the roster, if you wanted to join the Nation of Islam, you could come up and shake the minister's hand. That was an incentive to join the Nation of Islam, to shake his hand. And the requirement was that after you shake his hand, they would give you a letter to get your ex, and you had to send your letter to Chicago, and you had they give you a copy of the letter in which Master Farah Mohammed had written, and you supposed to copy it exactly as that copy was written, mm-hmm. and send it in, and in turn they would send you your ex. But I I I, I took a, a million of them letters and never sent it in because I had no intention of joining the Nation of Islam for the reasons that I mentioned before. I was young. I wasn't selling no papers. The truth was free as far as I was concerned. I wasn't putting on no bow tie. I was wearing fly clothes, and I wasn't ready to come out of them fly clothes to put on no suit. But I did love what Malcolm was saying. He was a courageous black man, and he was standing up, and he was calling a devil for what he was, a devil. The mm-hmm. shit that he did to us, it was real wicked and real evil. And ain't no question about that. It never happened to nobody on the planet Earth other than black people in America. But at any rate, I always shook Malcolm's hand. And I loved shaking his hand. And he began to recognize me as one of the little brothers in Harlem. You know? How did his death affect the people? It was, it was devastating. It was, it was devastating because Malcolm was a man and he dealt with the people and he didn't forget his history or where he came from. When they called him Detroit Red, it was that when he came to Harlem, he got that name Detroit uh, Detroit Red because he was in the street hustling with the hustlers in the street and he was handling his business mm-hmm. and they respected him. And then he went to Boston, went to jail, and then he got knowledge and came home, and he didn't go and stay in a temple, uh, 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 a mansion. You know, Malcolm hit the street and dealt with the people, mm. and he came out and had, you know, uh, mass rallies in the street. And he made himself real successful, so damn Malcolm got it together because he's standing up as a man. And, and when we really first heard about 
him stand up as a man. He made a courageous move that they had, uh, the police had beat a brother damn near to death. Brother named Johnson, I believe. Mm. And they took him to the precinct, the 23rd precinct on 100, the 28th precinct on 123rd between 7th and 8th. And Malcolm and them stepped up and went to the precinct and demanded that they take that brother out of that precinct and take him to the hospital. The hospital was about a couple of blocks away, Sinai Hospital, mm. over there on uh, St. Nicholas Avenue, on that area. But when Malcolm and them marched, they marched like a military force. And this was unseen in Harlem in 57. And the people in the street, seeing Malcolm moving through the street with a military force, they moving mm. FOI style, and everybody followed him. And when they got to the precinct, believe it, it was thousands with him at the precinct. And he demanded that they bring that brother out of that uh, cell, holding cell, and take him to the hospital. And sure enough, that's what they did. Brought him out that cell, took him to the hospital, and then Malcolm dismissed the fruit of Islam. And now everybody in Harlem seeing this, that damn, this brother is serious. He cared about his brother. He got him out that jail cell. You don't get a black man out of jail cell in 57 and made him take him to the hospital after the police damaged him. You know, so that's some power. And now everybody know that this brother got some power and he got them brothers in order. And brothers say, damn, they in order? I want to be in order. The older brothers, they got in order. They started joining the Nation of Islam. So when he got killed, it affected... It, it, uh, it was devastating that our leader, Malcolm was, you know, like what Ozzy Davis said, a shining black prince. He was a shining black prince. I mean, Malcolm was articulate, and he spoke for the black nation as a wise and intelligent black man. Mm. Like no other wise and intelligent black man. He didn't speak like a Negro professor you know, emulating them uh, Caucasians. He spoke like a black, intelligent man. Like, yeah, everything that you're saying may be, you know, correct from your perspective, but the way that we catching hell, that's a goddamn lie. And he let them know, and he showed them through history of all the lies that they told and the lie that they telling now, and we ain't going for it. Mm -hmm. And he stand up as a man, and he got all us standing up as men. I have a question. Do you think the Nation of Islam killed him? No, not uh, in the sense of giving the orders. Some of the members stepped up, like that dude, Haggett. I know that uh, AZ, that's Norman Butler, and Khalil, that's uh, Thomas of uh, 15X. I know they didn't kill him, but that dude, Thomas Haggett, the one that got busted that day, he was down with an assassination squad that came out of Temple Number Twenty Five, Newark, New Jersey, mm. and he admitted that. Okay, but they was the tools that was used mm -hmm. essentially by the CIA, the FBI, United States government. Uh, hold on, and mm. forgive me yes. for my ignorance. You know. Every time I hear that, that the CIA, you know, might have, I asked, who I asked, I asked Lord Jamal the same question. Mm -hmm. so. 
Every time, you know, I hear the CIA may have had something to do with it, you know, are we just basing this off of, I mean, of course, we know that they were watching Malcolm. And are we basing this off of the times or do we have actual concrete evidence that they may want, they may have wanted him dead? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, in terms of the concrete evidence, you don't have no direct evidence. Okay. But there's mounts of circumstantial evidence in the same way that uh, Coretta Scott King and the King family proved in court and made the United States government pay them for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And not too many people know that. You ain't even never even heard of the case. But yeah, the King family sued the United States government for killing Dr. Martin Luther King. And in the same way that they proved their case, we could almost prove a similar case in regards to Malcolm X. Oh, hold up. I never heard that, man. I know. Most people haven't. Really? It's, it's a matter of record. So, Martin, they, the, 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 the... The government paid Miss Coretta Scott King and the King family certain amounts of money for the assassination, for being responsible for killing her husband and their father. What role did the government admit in taking? The same role that Hoover has been documented for issuing uh, propaganda against Dr. King in terms of his womanizing, his mm -hmm. drinking, and his philanthropist ways and things of that nature. They had an actual campaign against King to discredit him and neutralize him. And neutralize to the government means uh, to take out the picture to prevent from being a galvanizer of black people in America. Hmm. So anyway, the yeah, they say kill, imprison, exile, all those things. That's what they had approved about the government being involved with King. And you and you and you're sure that we can if we if It's we, a matter of record. Right. Uh Research Miss Coretta Scott no, King. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you sure we can prove the same thing with Malcolm X. Yeah, I'm all, if we do the, go about the same business, I'm almost certain some documents will come up somewhere and some way, somewhere, somehow, somebody would collaborate all those suspicions. Understood. So, wow. I didn't, I didn't know. Actually, uh, they have a document. Was the U.S. government found guilty of assassinating Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, so. see that, and it's right there. Most black leaders in the '60s were killed. Well, the government had some type of hand in orchestrating murdering most black leaders in the '60s. Cointelpro, really? you familiar with Cointelpro? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's what that's all about. And mm -hmm. and this is black box. If you ever check anything out about the CIA, they was not only clandestine. But all the operations was covert, mm -hmm. under the table, and they always used agents of their agency to do this, that, or the other. And it was a separation of, like, the Mission Impossible. Uh, if should you get caught, we're going to disavow any knowledge mm -hmm. of our involvement with you. 
And like, see, a lot of people don't realize or even know, like the Watergate connection, some of the uh, Cubans that was involved with the Watergate connection was implied in the assassination of a lot of father of the five percent nation through uh what's this organization the omega seven mm. omega seven was a anti-castro uh organization okay from miami and they was down with the bear pigs do you know uh, it was a guy named Martinez that lived in New Jersey, Omega 7, from Miami, that was down with the Bear Pigs. You know where he got busted in 1972? Where? At the Watergate uh, Hotel. And you know who was uh, his control at Watergate? E. Howard Hunt, uh, Lily, and all those dudes with the CIA breaking into Watergate. But this dude was in uh, with the CIA, and he was with Omega 7, and he was down with the anti-Castro, and he was down with uh, the Bay of Pigs. And when you go to the FBI files, you can see his connection in a lot of father's assassination. So <clears throat> the the leader of uh, of uh, 5% Nation, yeah. um, the leader of the 5% Nation is uh, which was, uh, Clarence... Yeah, it was calling Clarence 13X when he was a member in the Mars. He used to be a student minister under Malcolm X and a lieutenant in the FOI. Mm. And you met him? I was taught by him. You was taught directly under Directly. He saved me from the police a week before Thanksgiving 1964. I stole a hat out of Lee's uh, Stetson store, a, a, a cashmere hat. At the mm -hmm. time, it cost $20.00 and they call it a Fletcher. Mm -hmm. And I was running down 125th Street, turned the corner at 7th Avenue, running uptown, going across 126th Street. And he was in the Worldworth Bar, and he came out, and he stopped the police from shooting me in the back, or whatever the case may be, because he told the police. I didn't hear him, but I looked back and seen him tell the police he couldn't run on his sidewalk chasing me. And the police went in the street against traffic. Traffic was going downtown. I was running uptown. And the police just, ah, fuck him. And I got away. And I came back and thanked the man who did that. And when I came back to thank him the next day, he wasn't on the corner in front of the World Work Bar on 126th Street. He was on 127th Street and 7th Avenue. And I thanked him by voicing it. Thank you. You know, and he winked at me and smile, but he had a cipher around him, and he was building. And what he was saying is what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And I was with him ever since then. So what type of man was he? Describe him. I describe him as a father who loved his children. That's the best way I could describe him. And not only did we call him the father, <clears throat> because that's, as a young 16-year-old youth, the image that he projected, but he was a seriously courageous man. He the only man that I knew that his brothers was being held in the basement on 127th Street at gunpoint. And he was told that they was being held until he come down there because they wanted to see him. 
And instead of him going to get a gun or running like a coward and hide, he immediately went in the basement to face his would-be assassins. That's what kind of courage he had. And he went down there and got shot and left for dead. When he could have ran, or he could have ran and got a gun, and then went down there and fought. He was a military man. He was a veteran of the Korean War. And he seen war. He walked on the dead before. You know, he walked over minefields, as he told me. He had all kind of courageous medals from uh, the Korean War. But he was really, really, really courageous. And he, he came to save his people, more specifically the young. And, and that's what he did. That's what kind of man he was. And, and, and he treated me, you know, with a lot of love. He used to walk up to me and kiss me on the cheek and give me a hug and a five before he gave it to his son. Mm. And a lot of people got jealous at that. But I was one of his serious students. I taught a lot of people and went to a lot of places and taught. And more importantly, a lot of people don't know it, but when they had him in Manawar, taking him through the persecution that they did for 22 months, I was in the street and doing my work and attracted higher government officials to recognize us as civilized people. How government officials was the governor of New York State that when he wanted to re uh, campaign for re-election in Harlem, he sent emissaries to, I would say me, but I was on the committee, uh, the political action committee for How You Act, and I was a youth director, and I was a co-chairman with a brother named Naheem of uh, the political action committee, How You Act, under Miss Shirley Middleton. And we had a meeting that we didn't call, but they called Inspector Witt, Eldred Witt, he was the first deputy uh, chief, the first black deputy chief of New York City Police. Captain Hill, Arthur Hill, he was the second black lieutenant of the 28th Precinct, or uh, either the second black lieutenant, I mean captain, excuse me, captain of a precinct. That, uh, John Hill, he was the captain of the 32nd Precinct in a Latin uh, captain from the 3030 that I don't remember. But at 17, like, they came and sat across the table with us to negotiate uh, as they made a supplication that Governor Rockefeller sent them to get our assurance that the five sins would not harm or hurt his campaign workers if they campaign in Harlem, South Bronx, and Bedford-Stuyvesant. Mm -hmm. And we gave them that assurance that as long that we civilized people, as long as they came in our community not telling no lies and deceiving our people, they won't have no problems out of us. But before we can consent to that, we got to go and see the father who's in Manawa and get his permission to give that assurance. And they say, that's what we want. You know, and I brought that to him, and it showed him, I guess, that we was on ours and made people that we had fought. This was in 66 when it happened. Mm -hmm. We fought in 63, the fruit stand ride, the police. Yeah. That was us and the police. And we fought in the Harlem ride. That was us against the police. And we fought in the 1965 
uh, Blackout, and the 1965 Lexington Avenue uh, riot, police riot, you know, and I was led by five percenters. So they knew that, you know, we were somewhat adversarial towards them as they was to us. And now we had a negotiating table talking high politics, and they came on behalf of the governor of New York State. And uh, to show how effective we was politically, that when Dr. Martin Luther King got assassinated, mm-hmm. we stopped the 19, we perhaps started it and stopped it, the 1968 riot in Harlem. And Lindsey came up, got with the law, walked the streets, and assured the father that he wasn't going to give no orders to shoot no children like Chicago Mayor Richard Daly gave his police orders to shoot and kill police. And when mm-hmm. Lindsey came out, the people seen that here's a white mayor that cared about black people and Dr. Martin Luther King. And we stopped that ride. And then on that Sunday, we was at uh, Central Park Bandstand, the, the Great Mall. Mm-hmm. Who would hug the father on the bandstand? The top man in New York State at that time, Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller. And that was reported in the New York Magazine by Gloria Stennon. Gloria Stennon was a white woman who had an organization. I remember that. Yeah, because, I mean, I lived it. You know, uh, she was uh, the president of NOW, the National Organization for Women. Mm. And she wrote the article in the New York Magazine, The City on the Eve of Destruction. And she had the father... Lindsay and Empire State Building on the cover of that magazine. And in that magazine, cover story, she wrote uh, the, su- the surreal happening that Governor Rockefeller hugged the super militant revolutionary Allah on that bandstand. Yeah. You know, and, and I was instrumental in giving them that assurance that we wasn't going to tear the city up. Real quick, do you remember the fruit stand, what happened? Uh, the fruit stand riot? Yeah. Somebody lost their eye, too, I heard. Yeah, um, one of the men that came to the young brother's aid. Yeah, what do you what do you remember from that story? Well, a young brother, about 10 years old, was said to have taken an orange off the stand. And it was a Italian guy who was one of the fruit stand workers or either owner. And he was beating the young brother up. And I guard and justice in them was coming from school. And they seen this grown man beating up the young 10-year-old brother. And they beat the grown man's ass. And he being a store owner, or either a store worker, the police came to his defense almost immediately. But they didn't know that these young brothers had learned karate on the roofs of 129th Street and wasn't taking no shit. And they beat the police up and took their clubs and chased them on about their business. And the police came back with reinforcements and clubbed them up and was taking one brother, I think it was Justice, <clears throat> to the police car, and they wouldn't allow it. They went and got Justice back from the police car and dragged them back down the block. Mm-hmm. And the police say that's their prisoner, and they went and got Justice again and dragged him. And that went on a couple of times until they called 
uh, super duper reinforcements, the new tactical forces, and that new tactical forces came with axe handles to fight teenagers, and that kind of quelled everything because they didn't have the strength. The young brothers didn't have the strength to fight three forces of grown ass men, especially the ones with the axe handles. Mm. Yeah. How how long? How long did that ride go on for? I, it, I I couldn't say, but it was contained just in that block, mm. 129th Street between Lenox and Seventh Avenue, off of Lenox Avenue to 129th Street between Lenox and Seventh Avenue. And um, what was what was the governor name that hugged? John, I mean uh, Nelson A. Rockefeller, Nelson Aldrich. Rockefeller. <laughs> you don't forget anything. I lived it, man. It was serious. I mean, the the see, like, the father at that time in 1968, he had been home a year and a month from Manawa. They put him in Manawa because they said he was crazy because he said he was Allah, the God. Mm-hmm. And they put him in Manawa, and they let him out of Manawa, gave him everything he want, and now the top man in the state is on his dick. So how crazy what? was he? How crazy could he have been? <laughs> and, and look, it was 72,000 people there. It was 72,000 people there. Yeah. So he ain't had no shame. And he and he thanked them. Read the article. You can dig yeah, it up. I'm, no, I'm pulling no, no, it yeah. up. Yeah, 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 yeah. It said it, you guys uh, prevented. It's, uh, it's under the cooperation... It's under a cooperation and conflict section. Ah. Where you, after Martin Luther King's death. Right. Okay, you yeah, got it. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1968, Lindsay feared about the riot in that occurred in Harlem. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true, yeah. Yeah, it's an actual fact. So, <laughs> what? They said that he was assassinated. Are yeah, you, he was. Got you. <laughs> yeah, um, hold on. Hey, yo, hey, yo E-Bot, can we get, can we get the... Uh, uh, Allah be some not, more. Not on, cam- not on camera. I'm uh, off camera. No, you're not off camera. Okay, well, he got a port over there for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you. you <laughs> this is on camera. You talking about it? It's live. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yo, that's not nice, man. You gonna uh, shake a cup like that instead of just saying, "Yo, oh, hey, come on, you shake a cup." Oh, <laughs> no, I ain't no beggar, Jeffrey. I ain't no beggar. <laughs> So yeah, Ebot, please come in here. Um, so he was. Uh, can you take his cup, please, and and tell them to refill the refreshments for the young man, please. No, no, it's alright. Uh, um, she would know. Um, yeah, that's going to know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Man, buddy, my man, shit in the cut. Jeffrey, not on camera. You don't want it on camera. Nah. Yeah, you can bring it. Yeah, no, bring just it. pour it in and hit me off. Thank <laughs> you. Man. What? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> so, thank you. Close the door, please, Thanks, bro. bro. My man. Yes. Thank you. Right. So, question. Yes. You were directly like you were working with him yeah you know what i mean you respected this man um his wife 
said that she believed that the NOI tried to assassinate him because he called himself Allah, which implied that he was above, uh, I guess. Master Farah Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad. Yes, so mm -hmm. do you agree that they attempt, there was an attempt I, on his life? I, I don't know. Uh, we we Some people thought that because the police said that he was targeted before Malcolm X. He got shot before Malcolm X. Malcolm X got shot and killed in 65. The father got killed, I mean shot in 64. So the shot where? What, what, what was he doing? How did he get shot? He got shot in the basement of 127th Street. The incident I told you. Oh, that was left that left him for dead. Yeah. So so you you paraphrased on it, but what do you remember about that incident? Well, I wasn't there. Number one, understood. And I did react it because I came downtown when I heard that it happened, and I came with a force, and we was right, strapped and everything. But it wasn't no information to be found and nobody to be found. But it was said different things that supposed that occurred. That one, he left the mosque and he was teaching in the street and the Muslims didn't like that. Okay? But at the time, we didn't know nothing about no Muslims using guns. Mm. Okay? So it was kind of discredited because it might have been, you know, gangster. Muslims that did use guns, but they wouldn't use it from the orders of Malcolm. Malcolm was still a minister. No, Malcolm had just got uh, exiled. He wasn't still minister. But the minister that was there, they wasn't using guns as far as we knew. Uh, it was something in the street about somebody that was close to the father was extorting uh, hustlers using his name. Mm. And they were supposed that came back uh, against him, but not against the people that was using his name. So that didn't make no sense. It didn't, does it? You know, so the speculation was just that, speculation. It was never no direct finger-pointing, identifying who was the perpetrators. But basically what happened was they told him that somebody's downstairs. Yeah. In the basement. He got a word. That and he went down there. And they shot him and left him for dead. Yeah. How much times he got shot? He got shot first with a shotgun across the chest. As he told me, he was advancing at the person. And he would have got him. But the guy backed up and blasted him with the 12-gauge shotgun across the chest. And he said it didn't knock him down. But it, the force of it pushed him back. And he still was on his feet, and he was still going at the dudes, Jews, and that's the term he used, his Jews. That's what we used to call the nuts, the family Jews, right? And he said the dude was so sharp that he took another step back, and this time he fired a sawed-off 30R6, which is an elephant rifle. You know, this is the gun that bring elephants down. And he said that one Man. hit him in the collarbone, pierced his heart, went through his lungs, and lodged in his right shoulder. And he demanded that I feel it twice, once in Manawa and once in the street. And I had to feel it. And I asked him, did it hurt? And he said, what do you think? You know, and it hurt him. But he wanted me to feel it, to let me know what he took for us. You know? 
But why did he go in the basement? What he went in the basement because he was fearless and courageous, and he went to save his people. That's what he said. He went to save his brother. Otherwise, they'd have killed them, and it wasn't for them. He knew that they didn't come because of no uh, extortion or somebody coming. He knew that this was sent by the government. He knew that. and He, so, he had to take the shot. That's the word he said. He had to take the shot. And he told me I had to take the shot. My shot was going to prison for 27 years. And the other two brothers that he told with me, Java, he took the shot at 19 and he died. He got shot in the heart August 8th. 1970, and Dubar that was with me, he got arrested that uh, week, and I got shot that Monday, August 3rd, 1970. He told all of us we had to take the shot. Wait, hold on. I know, I know, I know. It's it's got me a little, got me a little lost yeah, here. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But that's but that's what he said. He had to take. And the shot. And you're bringing me to the vision of uh, like I feel like I'm there. I, I don't want to take the shot right now. So let's. I don't. I don't blame you. Yeah, please. I didn't want to take it. Yeah, I'm, it hurts. Let's talk about this. So he gets shot. You go see him in the hospital. No, I didn't go see him in the hospital. I went to see him in Manawa. That was years later. But no. Uh, Manawa. Prince in Manawa. That's a, uh, uh, what's that, a hospital for the criminally insane. You said that earlier. They put him in there. Yeah, in the bug house. Yeah, so... And what made them so? So after that, was there any retaliation? But you guys came. Well, we, we 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 canvassed the street, but we couldn't find nobody. They was like ghosts. Okay, so now moving forward, um, what made them put him in the home in Manawa? Now no home in prison. In prison, in Manawa. Yeah. Pardon me. What it, made them put him in there? What did that, he that do? He, he, well, the provocation was, is that earlier on the day. Of May 31st, he supposed to have assaulted a guy named Wilbert Lee, who pulled the gun on him, and he beat the dude with a stick and whatever. And the police came. He supposed to have assaulted the police, but don't get arrested. And he comes uptown, and he's supposed to be teaching where Malcolm used to teach in front of the chock full of nuts. And the police was telling him that he had to move on and stuff of that nature. And he's supposed to assaulted two Caucasian police, two Irish guys, <clears throat> and they called for reinforcements. And our job was one of the first born in the nation of uh, the five percent to say, and he was there that they came like it was a pre-ordained uh, assassination uh, squad that they came from four directions in a matter of minutes when they arrested him, and they was getting busy. They wasn't letting them mess with the father. The young brothers was fighting and handling shit. And the father seen where it was going, and he stopped it by telling them, don't kill my sons. And those are the words that our driver said he uttered. Don't kill my sons, and I'll go with you. And he went, and they took him downtown. That was on May 31st, 1965. Hmm. And he went to prison for the next 22 months. Okay. And you went to go see him. Yeah. Felt the bullet on the shoulder and all that larger shoulder. Cool. Mm -hmm. Now he said you got to take the shot. He told each, he said you guys got to take the shot. He used that word. Yeah, it, it was, the circumstances was that 
We was in the gambling hole, the same gambling hole that he got shot in. Right? This was after he came home from Manawa. It was around, I think, December 67. And he had already got to school dealing with Lindsay and all that. Mm -hmm. And he was going to uh, a party. They called it the Cop and Robbers Party at uh, Lindsay. Bear, uh, Lindsay's chief aide, what's his name? Barry Gotha wrote it about it in his book, uh, The Mayor's Man, mm -hmm. in the section called A Man Called Allah. And before the father went, he had me job in Dubai in the basement. And he was telling us that he wanted us to go with him, escort him, that is, downtown to the party. Mm -hmm. But he took us through a little test. I had a 3-8 on me for security purposes. Me job in Dubai. And <laughs> 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 do security. I like that though. <laughs> yeah. And he knew it and he took it out of my waist. Now, the guys that was gambling, they didn't see him take it out of my waist. We was on the side. But he went in the hole where they used to shoot the dice under the lamp and like... He was getting ready to spray them. He wasn't going to spray them, but he acted like he was, and they broke out. I'm talking about they got up out of This is the same place he got shot. And it was an old dude named Foots. He had a brown Cadillac. And he had bad feet. So he couldn't run. So now the only ones in the basement is the father, me, Jabba, and Dubal, and Foots. And Foots, oh, come on, Allah, don't play with that gun. Don't play with that gun. He was, like, really trembling. All the mother guys ran, and the father say, yeah, they got fear of God. That's why they ran. Y'all don't. You know, and that's when he told us in no uncertain terms after he took us through a little test. He put the gun to Jabba head right between the eyes and said, pow. And Jabba didn't blink. He went to Dubai next. Same thing. And said, pow. And Dubai didn't blink. Then he came to me and said, pow, and I didn't blink. And that's when he told us, yeah, we don't have no fear of God. Hmm. You know why we didn't have no fear of God? Because you wasn't scared to die? No, because we was God, and we knew that he wasn't going to hurt us. Them other people had fear because they didn't know whether or not he was going to hurt them or not. Because they might have been in the basement when he got shot. Mm. Mm. That was the same basement. But we didn't have no fear. And he told us that he wanted us to escort him to that party. But we didn't go escort him. We met him that Friday night at the school and escorted him to 127th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue Subway. That's mm -hmm. 125th Street Station. Mm -hmm. But that exit was 127th Street. Mm -hmm. And me and, Job, me and uh, Java stayed upstairs. Dubai went down with him, and he told us to be there at 12 o'clock because that's when he coming back. And they went down there to that party, the Cops and Roger party that Barry, I mean, uh, Barry Gotha spoke about in his book. And he was threatened that night by the super district attorney of New York, Burton Roberts, and I, and I had the Bronx. And that's what he came upstairs, and that's the first thing he told me, that Burton Roberts threatened him, that he could be a law in New York County, 
He could be a law in Kings County. He could be a law in Queens County. But if he came up to the Bronx telling people that he a law, he going to have his black ass put in jail. And that's what happened to me in 1971. I was the one that was responsible for the teachings in the Bronx. So. Yeah. So bring us back to, before we talk about that, bring us back to the day that he died. Yeah, that was June 13, 1969. And it was a beautiful day. And his mother said that he stayed at his mother's house. Uh, she had a boarding house on 139th Street, 249. And he had a brother that named John. He had a room there. Uh, Wilbert, he had a room there. And the father had uh, the room in uh, apartment one. They was all broken down, apartment one. Kitchen was on the first floor. I laid, And he had a younger brother named Harry. He was in apartment 11. I later had apartment 11 myself. But his mother said that that morning he woke up and said he had the best sleep that he ever had in his life. And she tried to convince him not to go out. She had a premonition that she asked him, is there anything that you could do to stay home and not go where you got to go? And he told her, they must have been on it, that, Mom, when they want you, they're going to get you. Ain't nothing you could do. And he left her that day. And that was that morning. And then that whole day, I wasn't there. The last time I seen him was June 11th. And he told me, he told me to stay in the Bronx and teach the babies. He didn't want me there. He done gave me what I had to get and don't even come near. And he chased me with my little crew. Back to the Bronx, June 11th. And what do you mean, chase you? Get the fuck out of here. Don't come down here no more. <laughs> Word? Word. My duty was up in the Bronx with them children. He didn't need me no more. He gave me what he had to give me. And I didn't get the picture until he gave it to me like that to let me know how serious he was. So you went back down to see him in Harlem? On June 11th. I ain't go see him after that. No, I know. I'm, I'm talking, that's about June 11th. Yeah. And then you went to go see him, and then he looked at you and said, get out of he here. He chased me out of Harlem. There's a brother named you, Allah, tell you the same thing. He chased us up out of Harlem. He didn't want us down there no more. But it really was that if I'd have been on the set, I would have seen what was going on or who was scoping on him. You know, I'd have seen who was scoping. And that's what I knew he knew. And he didn't want me to see that because I would have did whatever had to be done to prevent it. Mm. Yeah. Because in that same spot where he chased me from, I had knocked out a dude that went in his back pocket on him. A dude named Do Funny. You know? And he used to be a bully. But I was like quick on the draw, so to speak. You know? But I would have detected it. So he chased me out so I couldn't detect it. So that whatever had to happen... On June 13, had to happen. And there wasn't no stopping it. And he knew that. You know? So you, how many guys were you with when you ran? How many what? How many guys were there with you when y'all ran? Because how you well, We didn't them? run. I mean, like, I know, that's I know. a matter of expression. We didn't, we, we, we had it up. We got out of town. Yeah, we got we walked, out of Dodge. Yeah, walked away, right? Yeah, we walked away. Yeah. You know, grudgingly. 
We didn't want to leave. We came from uh, uptown, the Bronx, mm-hmm. 180th Street, downtown, 126th Street, to, get to, be, to be there with them, to yeah. be around them. That's all. It was after 8 o'clock. I done took care of all the children uptown. Now we're going to be, we're going to get what we want just to be around them. Mm. So then you go back to the Bronx and that day, yeah. what was he doing? What was he going? He was what teaching. He, he was He was teaching hard. Because the brothers that was there, it was about 12 brothers when he left about 3.30. He mm-hmm. didn't chase them out. He gave them what he had to give them. It was about 12 of them. You know, we call that the Last Supper. He was a 13th man, and he had 12 people at the table. And you know who say that they was there? Who? Uh, Dr. Smalls. Dr. Robert Smalls? Okay. He's he's one of the black historians today that followed down the line of Dr. Jeffries, uh, Dr. Ben. In fact, he was trained under Dr. Ben. You familiar with Dr. Ben? Yes. Yeah, he was Dr. Smalls was trained under Dr. Ben. But he said that he was there that night when the father left because they had a thing at the Holland State Office building and the Black Panthers and the Black Nationalists was protesting the building of the Harlem State Office building, and they was coming to our school to use the bathroom and hang out. But he said he was there that night. I don't know if he was counted amongst the 12, but he claimed that he was there that night. And then he he, he, walk, he was walking. He took a cab, and his brother usually used to come and pick him up in a cab, his youngest brother, ALR. Mm-hmm. But he didn't come that night. But a cab picked him up and took him to his wife's apartment on uh, 112th Street, 21 West, 112th Street. And he got shot in the elevator of that building seven times, but they fired eight times. They said the funeral was was they you know they brought it it was big yeah we had seven buses you know that's the first time I seen seven buses uh as a procession ride through Harlem it was big it was reported highly reported especially in Amsterdam news uh, Les Matthews was the featured uh, writer and he wrote a hell of fine article. About the father, that was one of his friends too. What did that do to you? His death. Well, I tell you, man. He told me that when he go home, that's what he I, called it. Yeah, that's what he called it. When he go home, that we was gonna be dead for a year, and we was literally dead for a year. It was a devastating blow. Uh, we didn't have. He said he wasn't our leader, but he led us in the right direction. We didn't have no leader. We had to fend for ourselves, as he said, that we had to show and prove for ourselves because he wasn't going to be here to do it for us. But to say it and then be young and have to do it, you know, where you had an adult, you know, giving you the guidance and all the guidance that you need, you're getting from an adult. And then all of a sudden, you got to do everything for yourself. You got to figure all this shit out. And then you're figuring out the worst 
situation. You ain't figuring out the best situation. You ain't figuring out uh, spending this money, enjoying this woman, eating this good food. You know, you figuring out, damn, who killed the father? Damn, how I'm going to find this motherfucker? Damn, is they watching us? Is they going to, you know, hit us? Is they going to shoot us? And we walking, we working with all this, but all the time that we working with all that, we looking for whoever did this. And and, and everything is cold. We couldn't get no leads, no hints, no nothing. Everything so was cold. So nothing up to this day, there's no... Nothing. Nothing at all. Well, oh. it, it's, it's, it's some things that I can't even speak on, you know? So I, I say nothing. I don't know. Respect. Respect. Yeah. Respect. So this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in the Bronx. You're still, you know, so you said you're in the Bronx. You're teaching. Now yeah. tell us what led you to do your your bid. Twenty seven years. Well, it, it was the same as like with the father saving the baby. Like I said, I was selling coke, and I just came from my man's spot. And he wasn't home. I was trying to get him all day to re-up. And I'm coming out the spot, and out the building, I could see straight to the street. And it's a young brother there named Hakeem, a real light-skinned brother. And it's a man there. Hakeem got a bike, and it's a man there in the car with a car door open, like threatening him. So I'm, I moved straight to the issue. And then I noticed the man got a gun on the kid. Hakeem is 13, the man 39. I'm 21 and I ain't thinking about what time it is, you know? So what you doing with that gun on my young brother? And he gave me some story about it was his son bike and they took it from him. And I say, he ain't take no bike from nobody, man. You know, if it's his and he got it, you got him terrified. And when I go to look at the dude and Hakeem breaks the fuck out, you know? So now <laughs> I can't even explain this situation because I don't know the real deal of who shit it is. But I know one thing, he ain't got the gun on the brother mm-hmm. and he ain't got the gun on him no more. But when Hakeem broke out, the bike is falling on me. You know, he ain't push it on me, but he let it go and it didn't fall this way. It fell that way. And I'm right there between him and the man. And I grabbed that motherfucker and the dude, now he got the gun on me. And he demand I put the bike in the back of the car. I don't tell him that, yo, this is the kid bike you're taking it from. I just left that alone. This nigga got the gun. And I'm going to respect the fact that uh, he could shoot me at any moment. And that's what I thought, too. After I put the bike in the back of his car, he shot. And I tensed my body for a bullet, but I didn't feel it. So I looked back and seen he was shooting to the side. And Hakeem had went and told the young brothers, young guards, that what's happened. And they came to my aid just like I came to Hakeem's aid. And the dude panicked. He shot again at them, and that gave me a chance to get out the way. And next thing you know, he fined all six shots, but he ain't hitting. He had two people, but it wasn't fatal or serious. But he got people justice. 
And in getting that people justice, they looking for the leader. And what happened, that was on September 16th, what happened September 13th was the Attica riot, the Attica massacre, 1971. And the only people on the whole planet Earth that reacted with any riotous action in the world was us in the South Bronx. And a sister named Luasia threw a garbage can through the window after telling us that that could have been us. After we found out them brothers got killed in Attica, that that could have been us who got killed. And we followed suit. When she broke that window, we told Tremont Avenue up in the Bronx from Southern Boulevard to West Avenue. But anyway, they're looking for the leader of this incident. And they considered me the leader of the five percent in the Bronx. Burton Roberts, that same redhead devil that told the father if he brought his teachings up there in the Bronx, he's going to have his black ass in jail. So three days later, when this happened, they're looking for me. And no matter what the circumstances was, I'm the one that they're going to pin whatever it is that involved five percenters on me. But I'm, I'm conf- what, what, what was the charge? The charge was murder. The dude got killed. He fired six shots, hit two people, and was later found in the street dead. You know you skipped that part. Yeah, I skipped that. <laughs> you know? Okay, so hold on. Let me let me let me walk myself through this story. The bike leans on you, boom. Now you put the bike in. In the car. You go back there and put the bike in the car. By this time the little homie ran out and got the other brothers. Yeah. The other brothers is coming towards him. He shoots one uh, he shoots. It wasn't coming directly to him. I was in I was behind the car. He was behind me, and they was on the sidewalk, and we was in the street. No, I understand. Okay. Yeah, he shoots. But they was coming towards where we were. Understood. Understood. Yeah, coming towards you. Right. He shoots one shot that direction, right? Or two. He shoot two, but the first one I thought was at me. Yeah, because you flinched your body. I I tensed my body. And, uh, And then he shot four more shots. And by this time, you went to the side. He shot another shot, and now it seemed like the brothers is in his ass because he didn't get in the car and drive off. His wife drove the car off and left him, and then he had to go by feet. He could have gotten in the car with the bike and drove the fuck off, <laughs> but he didn't because he, he was meant on hurting something. Were you strapped that day? Just no, I wasn't strapped. He was lucky. I wasn't strapped. But it was an old dude named Mr. Felton. He had a forty-five, And I told him, no, Mr. Felton, you ain't got to do that. So his wife drives off, he's on foot, and then he ends up dead. Yeah. Everything in there between, I don't even recall. It was so much. It was about 250 children on the street. Oh, so all of a sudden you have selective amnesia. You don't remember. Yeah, I'm very selective on that because there was so many people in the street <laughs> that people was incensed that, look, this dude came in the neighborhood and going to accustom a young brother. I love you, guy. Okay? Yes, he, he come yes, on sir. a young brother, and we ain't going to have that. We're not going to have so that. So all the other stuff is blurry. Faces is blurry. Everything is blurry. 
Yeah. Yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> but he ended up getting killed. Yeah. And they blamed you for killing him. Me and two others. You and two others. Out of two hundred, uh, out of approximately two hundred fifty people, you don't know who chasing and what they chase for. Some chasing for to be spectators. Some chasing to avenge what happened. You don't know. I don't know. How did he? He was murdered, like shot, or like... nah? He was beaten, stabbed. Oh, he was beaten, stabbed, and the gun never recovered. Ooh. And the wife told him about the gun. But she claimed he only shot twice because she was only there when he shot twice. She wasn't there with the other four shots. She wasn't there when the other two people got shot or graves. And then he got beat up and stabbed and beat to death, basically. Mm -hmm. Murdered. How many days passed until you got arrested? That same night. That same night you got arrested? Yeah, they already had it in their mind that they're going to... They're looking for the leader of the... Riot of September 13th. Mm. And they already know it was the five centers involved in the riot following the Attica assassination. I mean, Attica massacre. Mm. So they already got my name. They already know where I'm at. So as soon as they hear something going on in that neighborhood and the word five center. They coming for you. They came for me. Came for you. Okay. So now you get arrested. Did mm -hmm. you have a trial? Yeah, I had a full-blown trial. I represented myself because none of them devils could represent me. <laughs> and you know what they say about self-representation? Tell us. An ass for a client and a fool for a lawyer. <laughs> Love this guy, yo. You? So, so you represent yourself, and what was your argument that you didn't do it? My argument was that I didn't do it uh, as charged, that I was innocent and not guilty as charged. Mm. And the DA even admitted that I couldn't plead self-defense because nobody got hurt. And I couldn't call the two people that got shot. And when you say nobody got hurt, I didn't get hurt. So it ain't no self-defense. So how long your trial took? Two weeks. And they found you guilty of murder? Mm -hmm. First degree. First degree murder. What happens next? I get sentenced, and they give me the max. 25 to life? Yes. And then you go to jail. Mm -hmm. And when you go to jail, prison, what does that do to you? Give us the prison. The, the, the whole, like... Going through the door, and they closed the door behind me, man. It was like my whole inside shook. Like my whole world was shook up. That in my mind, I did something that was righteous, saving the baby. Right. And in my mind, street justice was rendered. Mm. And it wasn't no murder that in all righteousness that this individual came at a youth with a gun and got back what he wanted. But that's, that wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to hurt something because he didn't get in the car and leave after he got the bike. Exactly. If that's what you came for and you got, why are you still here? You know, so 
I'm, I'm looking at the injustice that, damn, ain't no way they could, could, you know, give me this shit and convict me with that type of reasoning. But they didn't have that type of reason. They had the type of reason that we finally got this motherfucker and he going to get it and he going to get it all. And, and I knew that, you know, and I had a paid lawyer, but they put a young brother in my case and he, he didn't have no paid lawyer and his family didn't have no paid lawyer. <coughs> so I made arrangements so he could have my lawyer. My lawyer name was Arthur Mass from 59th Chambers Street. And I got him through my job, the New York Urban League. I was working for the New York Urban League. And uh, Barry Garton then, the mayor's office, you know, got me that lawyer and shit. And I know with him, I wouldn't have got 25 to life. He came with, you know, the first offer 10. You know, I said, man, nah, blah, blah, blah. You know, but the first offer 10, they'd break that down to five. Mm-hmm. And at 71, they was, you kill a black person five years. You know, but it was too much politics. Racist politics and militant politics and just general effed up politics. So it wasn't no way I was going to win uh, representing myself. It wasn't no way I was going to win with any justice and had to suffer that. And hitting jail, it was like a devastating blow. I had a young son and my woman was pregnant. So that really weighed on me that, damn, what I'm going to do and taking care of my responsibility of my babies and the other babies that I was all leaving behind. You know, had to deal with that. Was it hard for you in prison? Yeah, because of who I was. My name was Born Allah, and that's how I went into prison. And that's how they had to address me. And it was real racist, and they didn't like that. And I was teaching, and they didn't like that. And the only way that they thought that they could stop me from doing what I was doing was to really lock me down uh, in the box, which was the prison in the prison. Mm. Yeah, so they locked me down in the box for a hole in the parliament, and they gave me 60 days in solitary confinement. But when it was time to release me, (laughs) they wouldn't release me. And they kept me an extra 359 days on... We just going to keep your ass up in there. I had to go to court to get out of that situation, you know. And they eventually paid me because it was illegal for them to keep me after the first 60-day sentence, you know. But that was the way that they was containing me to keep me from teaching. But that taught me a lesson that by them keeping me in the box, I wasn't doing my duty. And not doing my duty was, like, killing me. And I had to do my duty, so I had to find a way to stay out the box. And the way that I stayed out the box was through education. I didn't, you know, uh, kiss no ass. I didn't uh, buck dance and play the fool and none of that shit. I was still me, but I'm going to study and get this education. I started in Clinton. At the time, it wasn't no college program. I helped start a college program. It was a community college program, uh, Clinton Community College. And the way I did it was with this uh, union official. He's the president of the union. Uh, uh, they call him a Canuck. 
uh, a, a French guy born in Canada. His name was Defia. And I worked for him in the hospital. And he was a union boss. And he gave me a good hint in regards to how to handle this situation that these people don't like you. In fact, they don't even like me. I'm French, Canadian. They call me a cook, Canuck, and they don't even like me. Mm-hmm. And you black from New York City, and they hate you. And they ain't going to give you no justice. So, look, don't help them hurt you. And I listened to him. He said, now, with the way you go, that, you know, you want to do things, but every time you want to do something, include the correction officers. That if you go for programs, they're going to need more officers to work the programs. So that means they can hire more officers. And you go that way. And he was a union official. So he was interested in hiring more people and getting them overtime. So he was, you know, serving his self-interest. But at the same time he served his self-interest, he was helping me to develop the program that I can get the officers behind me to push for program. Because if I get the program, they're going to need personnel to supervise the people in the program. Mm -hmm. And I was officers. And the union guy let me know that, helped me with that. And when I started pushing that, the officers start saying, oh, he's not a bad guy. He helped us get more jobs, more money. They got their sons working there now and all that type of shit. So they, like, started kind of getting lax. Plus, I was a star football player. They used to bet on me, and they really liked me. I used to play basketball. Uh, and uh, who was up there at that time? Or Nevison, Preacher Brother. And he was he was so bad. Preacher brother was a serious ball player that the Knicks recruited him in 1972 out of Greenhaven Prison. But he had so much money that whatever contract they offered him, he ain't accepted. Just like Joe Hammond, he got recruited by the Lakers, the baddest team in the NBA at the time. They won 33 straight games. Joe Hammond worked with uh. Jerry West, Gail Goodrich, mm. Will Chamberlain, uh, Happy Harrison. That's my man, Joe. He worked with all of them and walked away from a $50,000 contract because he was making that kind of money in the street. Pee Wee did the same thing. Pee Wee Kirkland, he walked away from a $30,000 contract with the Chicago Bulls, you know? So them the type of players, and Pee Wee scored 100 points in Lewisburg. He the first one that ever scored, no, Will Chamberlain, the first one that ever scored 100 points in a regulation game. Pee Wee Kirkland was the second one. And then Cheryl Miller was the third one. 100 points in the game. <clears throat> but all of that helped. The sports and the programs helped me make it through, you know, that type situation. And I still... Developed the Grievous Committee in prison. That was a struggle with them. Uh, the Liaison Committee, that was a struggle. The Legislation Action Committee in Attica, that was a struggle. But it was all politics that mm-hmm. we had rights and we was exerting them rights. And I knew the law, you know, not because I represented myself, but I knew the law because I studied them books. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Last, I have, I have one qu- Final question. Um, 
I got a couple actually. Okay. But we rounding it down. Um, Muhammad Ali. What was your relationship with him? Well, uh, initially, okay, initially, it was a great relationship in that every time he used to come to Harlem, he used to come by the school on 126th Street. Okay. He used to be over there first with Malcolm at the Teresa Hotel on 125th Street in front of this chock full of nuts. And he used to come through. Uh, Seventh Avenue, there wasn't no school at that time. He used to come through. And he just, just liked us because Malcolm always used to recognize me. I don't think he knew me by name, but he always re- used to recognize me as many times I shook his hand. You know, he knew I was one of them little brothers that was not no joke in Harlem. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So he, like, you know, could get the feel that Malcolm had a relationship, at least in terms of recognition of this young brother. And we always did get that good smiling off. That was in, I think, 63, 64. And then when Malcolm got uh, excommunicated or exiled from the nation, it kind of changed with Muhammad Ali because we looked at him as abandoning Malcolm. He could have helped Malcolm more than anybody else at that time, and he didn't. He turned his back on him in a sense. So it became kind of jaded, but Muhammad Ali started coming back around at the 67, 68 and seeing the father at the school. Every time he come through, he would always, you know, see the father. I don't know if he heard that he used to be Clarence 13X or whatever the case may be. But he always used to come and pay that respect. But me and Muhammad Ali had, I wouldn't say a beef, but we had a controversy uh, on the University of Massachusetts campus. And it was February 17th, 1971. He was getting ready to fight Joe Frazier, March 8th. All right? And he was making the college circuit. And I, I was on the college circuit at that time. And the thing that I approached him about was that at the end of his lecture, he signed autographed photographs for $5. And it was about 3,000 people there. Most of them was Caucasian. And a few blacks from the Union Hall. And that was us with the rest of the blacks. And when he went to his Winnebago, after, you know, he did all that he did, the lecture, the signing of autographs, I approached him, because nothing but black student unions out there now, and say, why you, you know, ain't had nothing for the brothers and sisters? That we don't have the $5 for the pictures and things of that nature. And he got belligerent and didn't really answer the question. You know, well, brother... They ought to get the money, something like that. He said something like that. And I said, well, damn, you ain't doing the duty of a civilized person. And that was the 17th. That's our 17th degree. Excuse me. I say, you don't know the meaning of civilization to do the duty of a civilized person. And he, and, he, and he responded, oh, brother, if you talk like that and the Muslims heard you, you wouldn't wake up the next day. And we had a little scuffle. We didn't really have a scuffle, but... 
We was right. When I say we was right, we was packing. Right? And his brother, Rachman, pulled them away and put him on the bus. But other than that, I love Muhammad Ali. You know, but he didn't respond right about us being poor and we couldn't afford the five dollars to buy the autograph picture. Mm. You know, he could have gave the black students. It wasn't three thousand of us. It wasn't even a hundred of us. He could have gave us them pictures autograph just on the strength that we was brothers and sisters. You know, but he didn't see it that way. And he was tight for money because that was the first fight, major fight he had after coming back from uh, being stripped of his title. He had one fight prior to that in Atlanta against Jerry Quarry. And Frazier gave him that fight and $5,000 to get right and shit like that. But he might have been tight, you know, but we thought that, damn, you was 10%, you just came for the money. And you ain't give the brothers and sisters shit. That was my attitude. And he ain't like it. Listen. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you were a boisterous guy. <coughs> yeah. I mean. I'm not afraid to tell the truth. And I got a strong voice. And I think I use it pretty all right. You know? I don't. I ain't no bully. I don't pick on people. Mm-hmm. But I'm not afraid to tell the truth, and sometimes people don't like that. They say the truth hurt. But I believe the truth only hurt those that's doing wrong. Mm. It helps those that's doing right or want to do right. Um, How do you feel about uh things today? How do you feel? Do you feel that things change from back then to now? Do you feel that I think it, it got worse as far as the mental condition of black people in America. Mm. That, in a sense, as a whole, as a people, we went to sleep again. And that's a real mental death, to wake up from a mental death and then go back to sleep to mental death. Now you conscious of the mental death mm-hmm. and you suffering like an ignorant person. So that's stupidity, you know, because you really ain't got to suffer as no ignorant person. You know, you might still suffer, but you know what you're suffering from. And if you know what you're suffering from, you could find a remedy to relieve that suffering. But if you, you know, don't went back to sleep, you're not awoke any longer and you still suffering, you negating from the fact of finding a remedy to prevent or stop your suffering. Mm. You know, so they then became happy sufferers mm. and don't care about the future. You know, and, and the future is that you find a day more young women want to act like young boys and more young boys want to act like more young women. Mm-hmm. I mean, it ain't never been fashionable to sag your pants. <laughs> you know? I mean, we always been neat and proper and, and, and it's dresses. 
You know, not only do we got the rhythm and dance and stuff of that nature, but, yo, we set forth trends in fashion, you know, and, and you don't see that no more. And, wow, what can I say, man, that it's a terrible, pitiful thing, especially in the information age. You know that our children is intellectually and cybernetically geniuses. That mean the hand and eye coordination is the quickest mm-hmm. on the planet. If you can see it in basketball, football, baseball, whatever the case may be, on the physical tip. But that is comparable to their abilities on the intellectual tip and on the computer tip. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at them computer games, them young brothers and sisters, ain't nobody swifter than them on the computer games. True. You know, and, and to see all that squandered so much so that you may not even realize that our children feel that they is in a hopeless situation and a lot of them is desperately seeking help from their own psychological difficulties of coping with the given situation that they may be coping with that ain't never before that you heard of young blacks committing suicide Mm -hmm. at the rate that they say has increased mm-hmm. amongst the 12, <clears throat> the 24-year-old black youth in America. Before the profile of a suicidal person was a rich white man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was highlighted in the Wall Street crash of 1929. Mm-hmm. It was a fad, like them jumping out the window <clears throat> of tall buildings. Oh, so-and-so committed suicide. Yeah, a rich white man, right? Yeah. That was the, you know, thing. Mm. But now you hear about this little young sister that took her life in the Johnson Project committing suicide. And she had a pack with a young 11-year-old brother. And the reason why he didn't commit suicide with her is because his parents took his phone and they couldn't text you know, but she went on and committed suicide, and he didn't because he didn't have no text. But I got to run <coughs> to the bathroom. Oh, yeah, yeah, we about to, we about to yeah, Okay, I got to go back. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. All right. Damn. Maybe too much Yeah. <laughs> you know where it's at? Out that door, out that big door, the main door. You killing my man. Yeah, man. Out of knowledge. Yo. Very, very him and my, own, my other uncle. Yo. It's a lot of stuff I, I, I'm learning, you know, as he speak. So I'd be amazed by it, you know. My other uncle Bobby. Same way? Yeah. How the hell you know all the dates and, and uh, the streets? You know the the addresses, the the the, I mean, the, the years, like those guys. <laughs> if that joint is like really important to you, you know you gonna remember. Like I get it, though. I mean, but after a certain amount of years, you get older, you may you may slip up on certain things, and you may yeah. miss misquote certain things. He got everything down to a T from like yeah. four or five years old. That's that's kind of that's kind of impressive, man. Like a lot of stuff right there means a lot to him. So yeah, I guess it's, it's amazing to me and. You know, the things that he's been through, mm. you know, and it did. That's what makes, you know, a strong black man. Right. You know, 
because like he was saying, like the last 20, 20, 25 years, you just see the shift, like the way, you know, like you said, brothers be wearing dresses and stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. females are more masculine, you know, so it's like everything is just turned around and we accept it, you know. Now, how do we get out that cycle? That's just gonna take years and years upon years to figure out. Right, right. I don't think it's it's ever gonna stop, man. And like, I'm from the era of like the Rock Kims and you know Big Daddy Kane. So mm-hmm. when I see certain things in hip hop, I just be like, come on, man, you know. So just hopefully, yeah. you know, shit turn pretty soon, you know, cause. Hopefully. And this is this is this is your family, you know what I'm saying? You've been around him forever. Mm-hmm. But like what what's the thing that uh impresses you the most about him? Like what what, what the thing that he does or, or speaks about that or he knows like impresses well, I, you the most? Like me, like I'm a I'm a lover of like, you know, Khalid Muhammad, Malcolm mm-hmm. and you know, you know like Farrakhan. So like he like the juice he giving y'all and talking about just to understand that he he been there, he seen all that. Like I, I be jealous, you know. <laughs> so if I see someone on like a Malcolm X or whatever, everything back to like you know sixties and stuff like that, and to know that he been there or like I, I I do a lot of research on Harlem, and you see like Malcolm X ate at twenty twenty two West, and I've been in there, you know, saying before he knocked it down, it was on Hundred Fifth Street between um Fifth and Lennox, mm-hmm. and before he knocked it down, I went in there. And they had a booth in there, and it always said reserved for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's basically the closest. They got, they got the Audubon ballroom still up there. But as far as, like, touching something and sitting in something that Malcolm X actually sat at at that time, that was amazing to me. So when he, like, he give you knowledge, and he just basically saying, like, I was here, I shook hands with these people, Bumpy Johnson. Like, perfect example. I was watching, um, what was it, The Golf of Harlem? Mm-hmm. And my thing, too, was, like, if you're going to tell a story, be accurate with it. So, in that show, it, it dated where, um, what's the brother who had the Happy Land um, record, um, record store on 8th Avenue? Bobby. But, yeah. He supposed to get killed, he supposed to get, be, get killed by Vincent Degatti. I'm that like, yeah, happen. that didn't happen. He died in 2011. He did. But they, they killed him on the show, so just, like, yeah. I don't, I, I like things, yeah, like things to be accurate. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for the most part, it's entertainment. It's a good show to watch right, on right. Sunday, but it's just like... Is it a good show? I didn't start watching it yet. Yeah, it's a good show. Yeah, like I, heard, I, said, I heard it's real good. A lot of yeah, people, people said it's really good. I ain't, I ain't watched it either. But. And they said that the guy that played Malcolm X did it better than Denzel. Mm. Every beat said that. I ain't gonna lie. He he, he kind of resembles Malcolm. Like the, the, the mannerisms he have, I see it. Better than Denzel, though? But, oh, Denzel, Denzel did his thing. Oh, <laughs> I feel like this. For that time, that time period of when Malcolm X came out for Denzel, he did a good job for what he had to do with that movie and how he had to play Denzel because he's playing Denzel more, it's like a, more, a smaller role than what Denzel had to play for the movie. Mm. So he touched on certain parts of, you know, confronting Bumpy on certain things and, you know, you know recruiting females to, to join the, the Nation of Islam, mm. stuff like that. So... It's certain things that shorten for his role compared to with like you know what, what Denzel had to do and the mannerisms he had to give off to play Malcolm because 
I look at old videos and clips of Malcolm, and I kind of see both of them, you know what I'm saying, doing a but good who, job. Who, well, who did it better? Who does it better? Uh, Eric B. Eric, well, I we got to go watch both now. I'm, I'm about, yeah. to watch, about to watch the first one. Uncle E told me the guy that's playing Malcolm in this one is real good. He said he got Malcolm down to a T. I'm like, no way. Like, he he played the anguish that Malcolm had in his last days. The facial he, expressions? He, the, he really had worry. Yeah. And Denzel didn't show the serious worryation that Malcolm Ooh. had in them last days. Mm. But this brother, when you look at him and you see the way he's acting, that he know things ain't going right, and he f- begin to feel it, you can see mm. him feeling it. Anguish. The anguish. Got it. You can see him feeling it. And he showed that. He, he, he portrayed that. Real well, not to say better than Denzel, mm-hmm. but he brought it out where when you look at him and you see him go through it, you know he's going through anguish about, damn, the messenger is believing what they saying about me. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, that when they were saying that in Denzel, the X movie, you, you can look and see that Denzel didn't show that type of anguish. He showed a little worryation that he couldn't believe that Malcolm was, I mean, they, uh, the messenger and them was saying this. And, and the part that I really, that comes to mind is when his wife was telling him, you better believe it, that they saying that about you. Ooh. The brothers are saying this, the sisters are saying that. You better believe it. And Malcolm was not believing it. And you can see that in his face shoes, he wasn't believing it. It wasn't no anguish there. Mm. And then when he began to worry about it, that he worried about it, but he didn't have the same comparative anguish that that brother in uh, Godfather, Godfather of Harlem. That yeah. brother conveyed that. Like, he, he felt, and it seemed like he really was messed up that they was turning on him. You know, I didn't get that from Denzel. He had where he worried about it, but I didn't get the anguish that, damn, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. But better, Denzel is a top-rated actor, <laughs> A plus. You know. Well, listen. I have. You have any more questions? We want to thank you for coming on the show. I thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, uh, man with a lot of knowledge. Thank you, thank you, my brother. I've been you around. Round and round. You, you, you know, you, round and round. <laughs> you, um, I mean, you know, when you're telling the story, I could see myself there, like you uh, tell it, because you were there yeah. firsthand, and you know, um. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 71. I'll be 72 in September. 72 wow. in September. Wow. Look good, man. Wow. You Thank look good. You. Yeah, you're running around and you're moving around, man. You're drinking wow. nice, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, um, I, you know, I personally, call, you know, on behalf of Flip the Script, you know, want to thank you for coming up here and blessing us me. with the knowledge. You know, Appreciate I wish, you. I wish Appreciate you had definitely. much more time, you yes. know, because I know that it could go on for hours and hours yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel yeah. that. I'm I'm satisfied with this interview. You know how That's you peace. told your story, and you know I, I got all the answers I wanted to know. And also, I kind of you know I res- people are gonna respect 
the fact that when you talked about prison, man, you, you talked about the, you didn't, you talked about the making a negative situation into a positive yeah. charge. So that was, that was dope for me. That was a highlight. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, man. That's classic crazy. episode, dope episode. Make sure, make sure y'all uh, follow the page, uh, follow the pages, you know what I'm saying, at DJG1156, at Queens Flip with a Z, at Flip the Script Pod. Um, you know, shout to the sponsors today, which is no sponsors today. Shout to Maestro's, the always sponsoring. Shout to uh, Blood of Gold. Yeah. Man, Bino, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, man, dope episode. A lot of knowledge today, learned a lot of stuff, you know what I'm saying? Took, took us back to your time, to your era, you know, we appreciate that. Um, you have, um, do you have any pages that you want anybody to follow you on or any, you know, the YouTube? I, I just do Instagram. I don't. And uh, not I don't have no page on YouTube. I thought you have a page on YouTube. I see a lot. No, of- I, I be on YouTube on. Uh, can I announce this? It's, sure. Uh, Laugh at first sight with uh Jason Cross mm-hmm. and uh Sanetta TV. Shout out to Sanetta. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a law school in Mecca with Infomega. I do all three of those spots and got some good channels. You good know they. Yeah, shout out I to don't. Them. Dynamite. They, they don't have the views that y'all had, though. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> hey, listen, man. You a hustler, man. Get out of here. Don't let me, don't get me started, man. Uh, you a hard, you a hard bargain, huh? Uh, don't get me started with you, man. You from all of for real. Mm-hmm. Huh? Holler in the house. <laughs> That's all I can say. Holler in the house. Yo, man. Uptown, I, baby. I appreciate you coming through, Thank man. Thank you. I appreciate you listening to your viewers and having me. Oh, yes. They were I appreciate that. that yeah, Thank yeah, you, yeah, viewers. For sure, for sure. Thank you very much. Yes. Listen, man, it's Queens Flip, man. Uh, make sure you subscribe. Uh, remember, lock your doors, close your windows, close your blinds, open your blinds. And if you see Allah be on, on your lawn, you don't need a firearm. Let him in. He don't mean Thank no harm. Thank you. That's <laughs> but, beautiful. But if you saw him back in the days, don't be afraid to use a firearm because you saw what happened. <laughs> I'm from Queens. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, don't worry. Don't call. Please don't. All right. <laughs>